I've actually never had an official interview. Mm-hmm. Um, so my, you know, my career has always been just being pulled from one place to the next. Um, and I think that's pretty unusual. However, when we're trying to hire people at Seek, I found that it's actually very usual that, that those people who are desirable wind up getting pulled out of, out of companies rather than coming up for, for, for just general hire. Mm-hmm. Uh, in fact, at Seek, we wind up, because we're a truly distributed company, we're totally remote, we, we catch a lot of those people that ordinarily wouldn't pull up on the, the normal way of hiring people. Welcome to the Modern Work Podcast. I'm your host, Katherine Conaway. In this episode, I interview Dustin Johnson, a co-founder of Seek, a remote-only software company specializing in manufacturing analytics. Dustin and I met in 2016 on Remote Year and conducted our first interview in 2017 in Vietnam. In 2021, we did a follow-up interview over Zoom. I was in New Mexico, he was in Oregon. We kicked off our conversation with his three main interests as a kid, motorcycles, musicals, and computers. Talked about learning driven by passion, the early internet and technology in the 1990s, going to community college but never getting his college degree, working at the Space and Missile Systems Center in California, his contributions to Boeing, working for a drone company and the government, and then founding a startup software company of his own. In our follow-up interview, Dustin updates me on his company growth. They're now valued at half a billion dollars and just closed a Series C, so we cover a lot of good startup conversation topics. Show notes from his episode are available on modernworkpodcast.com slash episodes. And now, please enjoy our interview. I'm Dustin Johnson. Why don't you just tell us first what your like job title is now? I'm Principal Software Architect at Seek Corporation. We do industrial process software to help manage sensor data in manufacturing plants. Okay, there's a lot there. We're going to... Step back a little bit. Um, where did you grow up? El Segundo, California. El Segundo. Is that Southern California? Yep. It's, it's right on the coast of LA. Okay. And um, kind of like leading up to college, what were you really interested in? Like what, did, what were your like nerdy hobbies or not nerdy hobbies? <laughs> like what did you do? What were you really into? I was into mo- riding motorcycles, uh, drama, and computers. Okay, so motorcycles, drama, and what was the other thing? Computers. Computers. Those, uh, the natural three. Of course. That's one always. I remember one of your, we were doing some uh, getting to know each other game, and you'd said something, they'd been like 30 musicals at some age, and that was pretty funny at the time, because we didn't know each other at all. True story. Yeah. Am I right? Was it like 30? It was like 35, I think. Something like that. Yeah. So, okay. So you you did all these things, and... Um, how did you get into those three things? <laughs> I have no idea. Uh, my dad was really into motorcycles. Uh, uh, that's a start. <laughs> yep, yep. He was a semi, semi-pro uh, motocross racer. Oh, wow. So I got a motorcycle when I was seven years old and my mom flipped. So I uh, started riding when I was seven poorly and then started racing uh, more competitively when I was in high school. I guess middle school to high school. Where are children and teenagers racing motorcycles? In L.A.? Uh-huh. 
there was a few racetracks uh, in like uh, Eastern Torrance that we'd use. Am I picturing like racing on like uh, like concrete or the like dirt jumpy thing? Dirt. There was like moguls and jumps and things like that. Um, okay. Not as not nearly as insane as you see today. Uh, today, I mean, the jumps are just absolutely insane. They're jumping thirty feet in the air. That was not the kind of racing that I did. Um, but it was it was on dirt and and you were you were jumping, but just not the insane heights that you see today. Okay, so you were doing this through your dad, uh, which is I didn't I knew you rode motorcycles. Like I've seen you ride motorcycles and scooters in a lot of the countries, but I had no idea that it came from like childhood and this kind of racing thing. Uh, that's really cool and drama. Just got in. My parents decided I needed to get out of the house and there was all these community programs you could take, like cooking classes and swimming classes and this class and that class and drama was one of them. So I guess this is LA. It's like, this I'm in Texas. I'm like, we did not have that. <laughs> <laughs> like, I don't know what you're talking about. Yeah. So, so eight year old Dustin got, got forced to be one of the tiny little children that was running around with, uh, with a rain costume on doing singing in the rain. <laughs> not, not so tiny Dustin as an adult. <laughs> At least you had your moment. Yeah. So there was three of those a year uh, and I did it from eight to 18 um, and then a few side productions here and there. Um, it was a bit rough for me because I, I can't sing, dance or act. <laughs> so, so. Star player. <laughs> oh yeah. Oh yeah. I, uh, I was definitely a hit. I always played the B parts with gusto. <laughs> I can, these are things I can picture this. I can, I can look at this. Um, okay. So we have that unpacked and the tech stuff. Where did that, how did that happen? I always just, I always just liked it. I liked tinkering with it. They were just big puzzles uh, for me. Um, my dad was in tech a little bit though. He's not a tech minded guy. He's a, he's a musician more than anything he kind of got forced into tech because that's what everybody was doing. And we were in LA and he was unemployed for a little bit. And uh, one of his friends offered him a job as being a uh, the computer guy for his small business. And so he picked up a book and decided to learn. And um, I kind of got swept up in that a little bit, I guess. Yeah. It's, it's funny. I think, I don't know if this happens, I guess, I guess it's different for our generation because if you have to learn something, we Google it and we read online and we watch a YouTube video, but, um, Alondo's a little older than us. And I remember him talking about how when he, even though it was recent, was learning how to do iOS development, he like bought three books and went to a cabin for a weekend and learned how to develop apps. Um, and my dad like got out of college, had a business degree, didn't want to work in an office. And so decided he was going to be a carpenter, sold somebody this idea that he was going to come build them like a kitchen cabinet like installation, bought a book and the tools, like borrowed the tools from a friend and just showed up and figured out how to do it with like a book <laughs> and the, the materials in this man's house. And it, it turned into like a job that he had, but like everything else. Um, and it's so crazy to me. I think, I think it's great to have like certifications and training and go to school for jobs. Um, and you can certainly learn on the job from people, but it's really interesting to realize how actually like pretty common it is that people either get a job or want to get a job doing something. And they're like, well, I, I bought a book and like spent some weekends and months doing this and taught myself how, and then yeah, I became a carpenter or a IT guy or whatever. Yeah, completely agree. I mean, some of the best people that I've ever worked with in my field in software uh, are not software engineers. Like their degree does not say software engineer. They're mechanical engineers, they're electrical engineers. Um, I. I do think schooling helps, of course, um, and you're better off uh, going to school for the thing you wind up doing in life. But at least in software, it's been my experience that 
oftentimes the best in the industry don't necessarily have a degree in software. Right. And I think there's something to be said for uh, sometimes like people get degrees in something just because it's the thing to do to go to college. And mm -hmm. so you pick a degree and you, and you do that. Um, or you think you want to work in a field, so you, you get a degree in it, and, but you maybe don't have the real world experience to know. Um, but whether it's because you're really young or just because you've been doing something else, like when you get curious about something and you're just like, I gotta, like, I, I will consume anything about it. And I want to figure out how it works. And I'm just like, you really get drawn in like that passion to figure it out, like means that you probably learn way more about it than you'd ever be forced to learn in a course. And like, you're so invested in figuring out the solutions and coming up with ideas that, yeah, like it makes sense that those people would be some of the best because they're not in it because it was just like the direct path. They're in it because they just got so interested about it that they are going to be a software engineer. Yeah, totally. I mean, for, for me, I mean, the story that I think may, may quantify that is uh, I wasn't allowed online. This was, this was the day of, of AOL dialogue, right? <laughs> I was not allowed online because my parents had heard all the stories about, you know, rapists and things like that online. So I was not allowed online. <laughs> and uh, so I had these books, you know, I was learning visual basic, like this tinker toy language that uh, is very sophisticated if you're Visual basic is the name of the language. Visual basic is the name of the language. Okay. Um, it's, it's a little, it's basically dead now. Um, uh, but it was the language for my skill level at the time. And, uh, and so I was learning that and my mom had to come and babysit me while I was on my dad's computer trying to answer questions on like how to do stuff. So I'd go online and I'd download a bunch of source code from this website, planetsourcecode.com. And there was all these little projects that people had uploaded and I would go and I would download a bunch of them to a floppy disk. And then I would, you know, for like half an hour my, while my mom sat there and then I'd go to my computer and for like a week I would dissect these programs trying to figure out how they work. And then I'd hit a wall and I couldn't figure out anymore. I ran out of programs and then I'd like, mom, can I, can I, can I have another internet session? It's like, oh, okay, fine. I'm going to take my little floppy disk and rinse and repeat. <laughs> that's yeah, that's really interesting. That's so funny. I think, I think it's just, I, obviously I don't talk to a lot of people that are significantly younger and also significantly younger people aren't necessarily out working um, now, but our childhood and teenage years are so different from both the people before us and the people after us, because we did grow up with computers and we did have the internet at some point in that story. Like, but the computer I had as a middle schooler, elementary schooler was like a little box. that was like grayscale, like computer. And I had a computer game. It was uh, two Spelunks and Lemmings. <laughs> and, um, uh, and in high school, you know, we had like a color computer and everything, but it's, you know, it's like the AOL, like ka-ching, ka-ching, mm -hmm. uh, and, um, and, you know, I could write my essays in a word processor and, and use spreadsheets, but it was just a very different internet and, and computer than iPhones and iPads. And, and there was no, there was nothing like that with phones, like at all until after I was in college. Um, so we have like the tech in our youth that people older than us didn't have. But I mean, kids today are like iPads at two and they just like, it's, I, it's such a weird thing to think about like these like 20 year chunks, 10 year chunks, like how different each decade is in tech. And I don't even understand like the real nitty gritty of how any of it works. Sure. Yeah, I, I completely agree. I, I mean, two year olds are whiz kids at, at iPads. It blows my mind. But I have to tell people I was, I was born in 85, uh, which means Google was founded in 99. I was 14. I was a freshman in high school by the time Google was founded. It wasn't even really a thing for another couple of years. So yeah. 
the iPhone came out in 2007, right? That was now 10 years ago. It feels like the iPhone's been around forever, but I was out of college for a year or two by the time it came out. I mean, it's hard sometimes to realize how far we've come from back then. I used to use yeah. bigmama.com to search. I should you not. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, no, it's, it's yeah, I, don't, I mean, that's the thing is, yeah, if Google wasn't around until 99, like we were already writing school papers and, and, and doing things without that. And yeah, you adapt really quickly. You're like Google's great. I'm going to use this tool. Like as soon as it's there, it's ubiquitous and you're, it's all over the place. But um, yeah, that's just a whole other thing. But I find it really interesting, especially when I'm talking to uh, people who work in tech or developers or, or software engineers or whatever that big umbrella category is for you people, <laughs> because you know, you, they're all, every single one of you guys uh, tells me as a kid, you know, you're so into it and you found some way to get your hands on a computer. And at the time, like not only was that kind of rare to have a computer at home, but what you could do and how you did it with a computer is so different and it's not better or worse, but it's, you know, it's like that, like the thing that we think of now is this like programming, like screen that is a thing you open and program in before was just that was the whole computer like that's just what you were doing there was no there was that was no back end that was the end yeah with like green font on the screen it looked like the matrix yeah i mean i remember getting that like when you're restarting the computer it's like this and this and i just like press like f2 and enter or whatever it was and i obviously i was not curious enough to tinker like i just wanted to ms paint (laughs) um so, so when you were doing this as a kid, you were more on like the, the software and programming or were you also playing with the physical computer and taking it apart and things like that? Playing with the physical computer as well, um, but less so that because I just didn't have the money for it. Um, they were expensive and, and you know, I was a kid in middle school. I didn't have any money. You know, it was ridiculous. Uh, but I did wind up building the, the first computer first in maybe one of three computers that I built, not very many. Oh, only three. <laughs> <laughs> I guess I guess in your world, that's like not a lot, but I've built no computers. <laughs> well, there, there are people that, that like build computers even today, right? Yeah. And I've long since grown out of that. And I think the industry kind of has grown out of that. Sure. Um, and, and also it's kind of like when people say I'm building a bicycle. Really what they mean is they're assembling. It's like Ikea furniture here. You've only got like, you've only got like 13 parts and you just got to put them together. Right? <laughs> this is not a, a masterpiece you're building. You know? <laughs> um, but yeah, I, is that first computer, I think it cost $400 at the time. And, you know, it's not like we're talking 1950s money or anything like that. You know, $400 now is probably $600, $700. It's not very much money for a computer. But um, it is a lot of money for a kid or for a family, maybe on a like a hobby or something like that. It can be an investment. Absolutely. And you just couldn't buy a computer for less than that or even approaching that. So I had to build the first computer. I was financially like this was all the money I had. Um, there was really no alternative. I was keep using this. A uh, crappy little Macintosh that didn't even have a hard drive in it. It had two floppy disk drives. So you'd put one in and, rah, 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 and then it would boot up and you'd take it out and put in the Word disk. And rah, 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 rah. <laughs> Watching you act it out is an added bonus to the sound effects. <laughs> um, yeah, so what was this computer that you built? 
It was this, I mean, it was, you know, your classic white computer that I'm sure is yellowed if I still even had it, you know, this horrible yellowish <laughs> Why color. did they yellow? So it was so gross. You have like this, and then you like walk into like my dad's office and like everything's yellow. Yeah, it was just that color. And I'm sure it was kind of like bulbous and, you know, 90s styled. And um, I know at the big, at, at the time, the big decision you had to make was if you were going to get an Intel CPU or an AMD CPU. And those two companies still exist, obviously, uh, Intel's around, but AMD still exists, though they're not nearly as competitive with Intel as they used to be. Um, but even back then, they were still the knockoff kind of thing. They were maybe 50% the cost, and you could argue that they were 80% the performance. And some enthusiasts would say, no, they're 100% the performance. But everybody knew they were the knockoff brand. <laughs> so which one did you have? The AMD. Yeah, okay. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I, it was like kind of hinted. <laughs> um, and of course, the thing that I feel like we always have to remind, or even myself, that a computer then, like, you know, now we have laptops and even like the, the Mac computers now, it's basically just that giant screen, but we're talking like computer and monitor separate, <laughs> like Two totally different entities. Completely. I, when I when I later gave sold this computer to my grandma for the low low price of like hundred dollars, I sold this computer <laughs> and my soul because <laughs> it was unlimited tech support, and I didn't realize what that meant. <laughs> I'd get calls like I broke everything, and I'd go over there, and she just moved one of the windows to the side. <laughs> This ground shaking in my grandma's world. But and it's like, is it on? Is it plugged in? Yeah. Have you pressed the five on buttons that the system <laughs> somehow requires? And it's this that's the crux, actually, was I it was confusing to her that the speakers, the monitor, and the computer all had on buttons. Right. And and she didn't understand what the computer was. Right. To her, it was just the thing on the floor. Yeah. So when talking to her, the monitor was the computer. Yeah. And the thing on the floor, I literally said, that is the thing on the floor. <laughs> and she would not accept that you could turn them on in any order you wanted. I had to give her an order. Yeah. And then when I went over there and I turned it on in any other order, she would freak you're out. You're breaking it. <laughs> and make me turn it all off and start again. <laughs> the thing is, it's funny, but I do empathize with her because I feel like I'm in that middle ground where like, mm -hmm. I know that they're different and whatever. But some of me still would like, I'm sure I had a system of like, which had to be turned on first. And like, how many times you're like, this isn't working. And then you realize the, the speakers are off or the, like the plug is unplugged because you had it in something else. And um, it was interesting, like, still very like manual and analog experience, even though it was a computer. And uh, yeah, it's, it's, I'm glad that I lived through it. I'm glad that I've seen like some of the, I still don't really know how it works, but I have like a, a better sense of it than like my magical iPhone that has like no buttons. And like, right. it's just like, I don't have any idea. <laughs> like, right. um, yeah, well, we've really just gone down a rabbit hole. So you, <laughs> you did, you did motorcycles, drama, and computer stuff, and then like, how did you decide where to go to college and what to study? Well, I'm not, especially at that time, not very adventurous. Um, you know, my parents, to, to give you an idea of like the household I grew up in, my parents have never left the United States. They don't intend to ever leave the United States. Uh, when I was. Uh, pitching the idea of, hey, maybe you can come visit me and this will be an excuse for you to leave the United States. Here, uh, on remote year. On remote year, yeah. right. Uh, my my dad was pretty adamant that that is unlikely to happen. They are retired now and they like it in Oregon. <laughs> yeah, uh, very, very different than your life experience. Yeah, very different. And, and so when I was choosing schools, it was, I was looking in LA. 
the idea of moving across the country was something that uh, little L.A. Dustin with kind of conservative parents, uh, this was not in my realm of possibilities. Um, and also, I was definitely not, uh, we were lower middle class growing up. So I started off in a community college and then uh, transferred to a four-year university. What uh, community college? Just like a... Uh, Sacramento Community College. Okay. And and that's, so when you first went, you're basically just starting with like fundamental college classes that are kind of like in a general category, or had you picked a certain curriculum that you were studying? You, you for, for almost all engineering degrees, at least in California, you need to pick right out the gate. Um, some other majors you could choose, you could take your GE classes, your general education classes, and then around two years, you can, you can specialize in your major. If you did that with engineering, you're for sure looking at five years in college. Uh, so you pretty much, if you're going to try and fit college within four years, especially starting at a two-year school, you, you need to choose right up front. So you knew you wanted to focus on engineering yeah. going into it yep. because of playing with computers and doing everything like that. And so was it a software, computer engineering? Like what kind of engineering? Was there a specialty? Because I'm a short, like mechanical on different yeah. Others. <laughs> yeah, totally. In fact, software is really confusing because there's software engineering and then there's computer science. Mm -hmm. uh, software engineering is, you know, maybe people will yell at me for saying this, but this is this is my impression. This is uh, your impression in your podcast interview. Yes. Disclaimer. <laughs> I represent no opinions other than my own. Uh, but software engineering tends to focus more on hardware stuff, more like building computers and a little more electrical engineering behind it. And computer science is more when people think of a computer degree, they're probably thinking of computer science. Uh, which is more software theory and algorithms and math. Um, in my mind, if if you're going to be a professional software engineer, like you want to program for a living and you want to be have the most respect, you would choose computer science as your as your as the more theoretical versus the more practical like course of study. Correct. The theoretical is going to be more valuable later. Correct. Okay, that's yeah. interesting. I mean, I can appreciate that. I've studied liberal arts and very little, like, obvious practical application. But I think the critical thinking and the understanding of kind of like the history and cross studies information that you get from that kind of study, I think in the long run pays off, even though you might graduate and not immediately look like you have a career ahead of you that's, that's mapped out. But, sure. I mean, both are very valuable. Like, if, it depends on what you want and what you know. And if you're, if you're, I think if you're going into college and you say, like, this is exactly what I want. I somehow know that at 18. Um, this is what I want to do. And this is the program that does that. And it's the job that I'll get. Like, great. Um, but I think I definitely, I know I didn't know. And I think a lot of young people, like, we have passions, we have interests. But the reference point that you have up until college is pretty narrow. Like, you just, you don't have very much or any real world experience. You have whatever education and coursework is available in your high school. And you know what your parents know and what they do. And maybe, like, some other friends and family. So to think that you have a really good grasp of like every subject matter and job opportunity and, and to go into that field directly at such a point, I think is a challenge, uh, something I increasingly struggle with, like the education system that, that you wouldn't somehow know those things. Um, yeah, I, I completely agree. For, for me, uh, I, I do a lot of things. But I'm not good at many things, but I'm good at software engineering. And so I wouldn't say that I do software engineering because I enjoy it. I, I do enjoy it. I can think of things that I enjoy more, but I do it primarily because I'm really good at it and I like being good at things. So in turn, I like it. Yeah. 
Yeah, I think that's an interesting breakdown. And when we talk about finding our passions or doing a work that you're passionate about, um, sometimes that's because the thing that you do or the purpose that you do it for, the client that you do it for is important and what you're excited about. But I think there's value in saying um, maybe none of it's the most exciting or my most favorite thing, but I like to do something well, and this is something that I can do well, and therefore I can enjoy this thing that I'm doing. Yep. Completely. And maybe not, but maybe. <laughs> yeah, I completely agree with that. But but also, software is unique in that software is everywhere. So mm-hmm. in my career, I like my first job was in a pure software company, and it was by accident. I was 14 years old, actually, and it was a summer job. <laughs> and then, we were going to say like 18 or 20. Like, no, I was 14 so working at a software company. It's a tinker toy job. Just, yeah. you know, this is like for the summer. They didn't even give me a computer for the first week, so I learned how to use the phone. I was the only person in the office that knew how to use that phone, but I knew it. <laughs> I got this phone on lockdown. You need a phone? You call me. Yeah. No, you can't because you don't know how to use the phone. You walk over to me. <laughs> you want to put that person on hold and then conference someone else in? I'm your man. 14-year-old Dustin has too much power on me. <laughs> <laughs> so I, I, I had a decent idea of what I was getting myself into because I had this little job. Um, I worked as, as one of the Tinker Toy Network Administrators for my school district. Um, got to run on a little computer lab, you know, and do nerdy stuff. Um, and, and so I got kind of an early glimpse at, at, at a lot of this. Mm-hmm. And, um, and then coming out of school, I worked in uh, at the Space and Missile Systems Center, which is uh, a facility for the Air Force that's located on the LA Air Force Base, um, and and got to do rocket stuff. Like I worked in in the facility that that launched uh, that you know was if you picture Houston like Mission Control on Apollo thirteen, it looks exactly like that, and it's in LA of all places. They don't launch rockets in LA, but they do launch them in California and on Cape Canaveral, uh, Florida, and we launched from that facility in in El Segundo, California. Uh, we launched rockets for both of those places. We were the mission control for... <laughs> I cannot believe how casually you're talking about all of this, but yes, go on. <laughs> well, you, you have to understand... Like my little mind is just like... <laughs> <laughs> and, you know, it's not like I'm somebody important here, right? You know, I'm... I'm but just... you've been in this environment that, like, we've seen in movies. Like, the first thing you're telling me is, like, I went to college and I studied computer science and I did these things... And then I worked at Mission Control and it looks exactly like it looks in the movies. And we were ro- launching rockets all over America. And I'm like, sure. <laughs> sure. Yeah, it sounds really cool. But you have to temper it a little bit. A lot of things sound really cool and they're a little less cool in the day Well, that's true. That's the real lesson. <laughs> <laughs> um, but this is actually while I was going to school. Um, okay. I was doing this. And I was working uh, technically part-time, but I often put in full-time hours. So I got a pretty good glimpse at what it was like to work uh, with space stuff. You know, almost everybody that worked there besides me and a couple other uh, dedicated software engineers were aerospace engineers, and that's what they went to school for. So I got to hang out with a lot of people that were really into aerospace, you know, rockets. And uh, and then later I went uh, and did networking stuff, and that was pure software. Everybody was a software engineer, and it was just low-level networking stuff. I got to work on, like, the Boeing 787 and, you know, very, like, specific things that are very computer-related. The fact that it was in an aircraft was almost incidental. And then I worked on uh, drones. The, the, the last company I worked on before my current one uh, was back to aerospace, but this time aircraft. And this was much more accessible of a thing to get passionate about. And it's really cool as a, as, as a software engineer, you can kind of be a traveling salesman because you can work in these very different companies that have very different passions. And you get swept up in it, or at least I do. I think, I think most people would get swept up in this. Yeah. 
And uh, so that's why I have my pilot's license. Be- not because I set out like, I want my pilot's license. This is some life goal. It's like, no, I got swept up in people who are really passionate about aircraft. And it gives you an opportunity to be passionate about it too. Mm. I think that's one of the, the advantages of software engineering over other engineering disciplines because you just get to, there's more movement in the industry. It's a newer industry and the industry is really everywhere. Right. Like people need those skills for anything they want to do now. So you could get a job in a different geographic location in a different industry and company. Yep. Completely agree. And, yeah. and your, your projects are also uh, often shorter cycle. I mean, they, they can be longer cycle for certain, like in, in government uh, programs are typically 20 years, but they'll have releases, sub releases in there that are typically two, three years long. And it's natural for a software engineer to, to step in and out of those boundaries. But for a mechanical engineer, your life cycle is much longer because you've got products in the field that you're still supporting and you feel personally invested in a way that you don't as a software engineer. So yeah. you can still move around as another engineer type, but it's um, it's just less encouraged and it's less it's less fitting to the to the discipline. Okay. Yeah, that's really interesting. So when you were so you so you did your initial community college and then you went into college, mm-hmm. um, also in the LA area then, yep. and uh, studied computer science. Yep. And this starting to work at this mission control <laughs> job. <laughs> um, <laughs> Is that what it's called? Is that what we're the called? Space and Missile Systems Center? The Space and Missile Systems Center. I feel like it's like something I have to say four times, and I know it's like hissing, like drooling or something really great. Um, that place, S A something in S M C is the S M C. That's so much easier. Yeah. S M C, which is the rockets. Uh-huh. Um, did you find that because of a professor, or because of something at school? Is it an internship, or you saw a job listing? Won a science competition. What competition? <laughs> So there was this this science competition that was put on um, in the L.A. area, I think, and it was hosted by the L.A. Air Force Base, one of their outreach programs. And the idea was was that you and a team of four or five other high school students uh, would submit a proposal for how you're going to, what experiments you're going to run, what scientific research you're going to do, and and what conclusion your hypothesis, you know, this sort of classical science. So very open-ended and generic kind of science. As I recall, but high and did you find out about it from high school, like yes. from your school? They were yes. like, "We have the science thing. You should like you should apply, or like it just exists." And you and your friends were like, "Let's do it." No, no, not not nearly that motivated. I was pretty busy in high school. I was in three or four different with the drama, and, yeah, and in drama <laughs> and trying to balance motorcycle stuff. <laughs> so my physics teacher uh, came to me with a proposal and and said, "You should you should do this." Um, I think I think secretly. Uh, he was hoping that uh, I kind of tend to rally people around a, a common goal well. Uh, I think he was hoping that I would pull a group together um, to fit a deadline that was pretty short. And uh, I decided that would look great on a college application. So I did that. And it turns out that winning it was unexpected for us. We didn't expect to win it. But it came with uh, some money, which is great. I did know about this. What I didn't know was uh, in... Uh, an internship. So I got the job by accident. Um, I didn't actually really want this. No, this sounds uh, horrible, but I didn't really want the job. I was looking forward to having my last free summer is, is how I framed it in my mind. Um, but yeah, I got this job and it was a summer job and it was supposed to end at the end of the summer. And many people did come back for subsequent summers, but uh, at the end of my summer. The summer bef- after senior year of high school. Correct. Okay. Yeah, in between high school and, and college. Um, 
was spent at, at, at this facility. Um, and, and then I got a temporary or no part-time uh, job. So I wasn't just a summer intern at that point. Now it was a part-time job. And, and then I worked at first a small amount of hours, maybe 10 hours a week. And then over the course of three years, I worked there, I think, um, it was full-time and sometimes more than full-time. So you were pretty much working there the entire time you were in school. Yeah. And uh, coming in, obviously, before you even got to college, you were just using the knowledge of what you taught yourself about software engineering, and that's what you were doing there? What were you, what were you doing in that role? Yeah, all kinds of things. I mean, in, in the beginning, they're just like, ah, you're this kid who got this for free. <laughs> you won it. That, that's a kind of crappy way of getting a job. Like, hi, I'm Dustin. I won this. <laughs> How weird is that? So at first, at first, I mean, you know, I'm an 18 year old kid. I don't really know anything about anything. <laughs> they give me a badge and I don't know how to use it. <laughs> um, and I'm just like still uh, looking at pictures of me is just awkward. You know, I've got these leather shoes. I don't even really fit in, you know, I'm just uncomfortable and you can see it in my bones just the way I'm standing. Oh, yeah. So at the beginning, nothing much. Um, but then I get, I get put in the facility that, um, there was actually two sides of the facility that managed these, these rocket launches. Uh, one was where all the data got collected and, and initially processed. Mm -hmm. And if you imagine kind of like a Frankenstein lab with wires going everywhere and, you know, oscilloscopes with wavy lines on them. And, you know, I mean, if you just imagine something like that, it is really cold to keep everything cool because it's computers and stuff everywhere. But old computers like 1960s, 70s technology computers, that is a good mental image of the facility that I worked in. And then across the hall, there was the fancy smancy uh, facility that looked like Mission Control with the huge projectors up front and all the little screens down low and the microphones coming out of the desks uh, with push to talk capabilities and big red buttons to abort the launch. And you know, all this stuff was in the facility across, across the way. And uh, so I started off in that kind of backrooms facility and wound up uh, making tiny little improvements to, to some of their systems. Like I made software to to make a clock run. Like they bought this brand new big clock, like a countdown kind of timer. And it actually was a countdown clock. Uh, and they didn't have the software to hook it up to the signaling protocol that the, that the rocket used to count down. And so I wrote this tiny little application that is trivial now, but for 18 year old Dustin, it was a big deal. Um, I would be impressed with myself. <laughs> and I was. <laughs> so things like that. I did little things like that. And then over time, they got bigger and bigger and bigger um, to, to eventually, by the time I left there, uh, I had this tiny little team. I was very proud of myself. I had three and, a, and three quarters people. Um, what happened to the other quarter? You know, right? <laughs> it was actually, I just had a quarter of one person's time and then half of another person's time and then, and then three full-time people. Um, on my little team and, and we uh, managed and built the alerting software to, to roll up problems in the air vehicle because there's thousands and thousands of sensors in these things and you can't monitor them all. So even in, if you watch Apollo 13 again, you'll see like as they're going through and they'll say like battery systems, go, you know, guidance, go. You know, they have all these subsystems, but in each of those subsystems, there's far too much to look at for one or two or even three people to look at. So you need some software to kind of distill it for you. And uh, that's so kind of like leads into what you're doing now, but we won't go there directly. But I, I hear the word sensors in both of these sentences. Yeah, totally. And it, it, they actually, 
coincidentally have, have um, things to do with each other. Uh, but yeah, they do. Yeah, they're very close. And so you were like 22, whatever, graduating from college, kind of at the end. Never of- graduated. Never graduated. Never graduated. Don't have my degree. Okay. So you did two years at the community college and then you went on to your other school. And what happened? It Was it um, work opportunities or just not into... Yeah, so I, d- I did two years at community college and then two years at uh, the Florida University, which mm-hmm. is uh, University of California, Riverside. Okay. And decided I really didn't like University of California, Riverside. And I met this really awesome woman who lived in Sacramento. And she had a friend who was starting a company. And it turns out that her friend was a world-renowned network engineer. Like, I'd heard of him before. I'd used his software before. Like, he had a name, which mm-hmm. is very unusual in software that there's famous software people. There's maybe 20 people I know their name, and he was one of them. Um, and he was a postdoc student at University of California, Davis. And he was starting the company with the dean of computer science at Davis, John wow. Bruno. And I was going to be their first employee. You <laughs> just did the little excited, like, yay. Totally, yeah. The, okay, I think this that's is, a good reason to, it sounds like an opportunity. Yeah, I was super excited. And so this was just a summer job. Mm-hmm. Uh, so I went up there for the summer and had a great time and then decided that I was going to go back to Riverside, finish my degree, and then then move back up there. And so I went back to Riverside working for them remotely for uh, one semester. And then they offered me more money than I could turn down and I really wanted to go live with my girlfriend. And the plan was I'd enroll in UC Davis, which is a better school. Um, and that would be easy because John was the, the dean of computer science there. And then ah, that just never happened. The whole going back to school thing just always slipped and slipped and slipped. And now I'm 31 years old and I'm never going to go back I would school. never have guessed that <laughs> you, I mean, because you've done so many things that seem so technical. And in my head, you have to have a degree to do these things. Um, but... It's funny the stuff that actually isn't so, I mean, not to like discourage people from like doing what you're supposed to do. Like most of the time it's a good idea to do the things you're supposed to do. Um, but even like, like somebody was, uh, the city manager here was talking about how she like, which is, this is her story. So I'm not going to go to the details of it, but basically she dropped out of high school and like moved to Korea on her own as like a whatever 17, 18 year old kid. And, um, I don't know exactly what she did in terms of having a high school diploma or certificate or anything or not, but like eventually as like a master's from a school in London and like certainly found a way to make it work, even if she never did get it. And like in my head, you couldn't go to college without high school because typically is required, but um, the world is a lot more complicated and nuanced than you think. And like, if you're good at things and you try to make opportunities happen and you work and you like, not everything will work out, but way more can happen if you like try to negotiate and you bring something to the table or you pitch a solution or you just ask. <laughs> Sometimes like you don't need some of these things and, and you can move forward anyway. Yeah, I completely agree, though. It's something that um, definitely makes the regret list and mm-hmm. I wouldn't recommend. I yeah. Mean, especially in engineering, it's very difficult to make your way if you don't have a degree. Mm-hmm. I just got incredibly lucky. I think that's what it boils down to. I mean, I think the fact that you were working so much and therefore had years of experience on your resume before that first job with them that got you out of school, like you already had a resume. And then whatever it is you did with them, I'm sure it sounds like it's probably going to be kind of interesting. Um, 
like that is probably a qualification that people are like, well, I don't really like the the degree, but you do have six years of this. Well, at this point, I wasn't out of school yet. Mm-hmm. Um, so I was just there as an intern, you know, a summer person. Right. And uh, I've actually never had an official interview. Mm-hmm. Um, so my, you know, my career has always been just being pulled from one place to the next. Um, and I think that's pretty unusual. However, when we're trying to hire people at Seek, I found that it's actually very usual that that those people who are desirable wind up getting pulled out of out of companies rather than coming up for for, for just general hire. Mm-hmm. Uh, in fact, at Seek, we wind up because we're a truly distributed company. We're totally remote. We we catch a lot of those people that ordinarily wouldn't pull up on the the normal way of hiring people because their wife or fiance needs to move. Mm-hmm. And so they're just, you know, we have a guy who used to work at Amazon. He's fantastic. He was in Seattle and his wife needed to move to the middle of nowhere, Florida, because that's where she's doing her residency. And he found us because we're a truly remote company. We wouldn't be able to have gotten him otherwise. Mm-hmm. Um, but unless you, you look for like little nuances like that, I think, Generally, good engineers don't pop up for general hire very often, it seems, when we're trying to hire people. Mm. Interesting. So what was this thing that you ended up in um, UC Davis area company? Yeah, it was called Case Technologies. Uh, it doesn't exist anymore. It got, got sold to a company called Riverbed. But it was a company that was founded by uh, Loris Stagiani. Uh, who's the guy I was telling you about, and uh, John Bruno. And uh, it was, their initial vision was to create networking products. And the first the first sort of major contract that they landed was to make a protocol analyzer for the creation of the Boeing 787. Um, the 787 was going to use a new way of doing things uh, where they were going to use Ethernet-type technology instead of the old, more analogous to cable modem type technology to move data around the aircraft. And uh, they wound up getting their foot in the door with this fairly small uh, engineering analysis product to see what's going on at a very low level. And by the end of, of my short career at Seek, three-year career at Seek... Uh, Not Seek. Oh, yes, sorry. <laughs> case, case technologies. Case. Was um, we were building... The protocol actually called AFDX, um, and that is the protocol actually that was on the aircraft that we flew from um, from Peru to to London on. Oh, we flew on that. Yeah, remote your data. And you built some part of that thing. I mean, not physically. Mm-hmm. I guess. Yeah, me, me, John Bruno, and Laura Stagiani uh, are the three creators of that particular signaling protocol on the seventy seven. Wow. Thanks for keeping us alive or something. I, guess. <laughs> I, assume, I assume it'd be bad if it didn't work. So it I'm going to go bad. ahead and be grateful. <laughs> it would be bad. Yes, it would. <laughs> that, that network actually winds up controlling almost everything in the aircraft. From... Oh, <laughs> so we're really indebted to you. <laughs> yeah, everywhere from, from primary flight controls to uh, the lights to signal uh, the flight attendant to come are, are all on that network. Um, of course, there's two other uh, backup systems for primary flight controls. Um, so if that system comes offline, it would be a catastrophic experience for the passengers. All lights would go out. I mean, it would be bad, but the aircraft would still fly and you would not die. It would just be scary. It would be very scary. Mm-hmm. Yeah. But, but it um, like wouldn't technically be breaking. Correct. Great. Yeah. 
It's funny because um, I know you sat with uh, one of the other ladies in the program who's afraid of flying. And I feel like on the one hand, I could see you being very comforting because you obviously know a lot about it. And on the other hand, I could see you being terrifying to be like, yeah, it's great. We have this thing. And if it doesn't work, everything will turn off and it'll be so scary, but it'll be also okay. Like, <laughs> yeah. yeah, I don't know if I feel better or worse knowing that. <laughs> yeah, totally. Yeah. Um, information. She was happy though, so I guess you did a good job with her. So that's good. Yeah, I'm very, I'm very information driven, right? So if, if the person sitting next to me isn't also information driven, there could be a communication mismatch. <laughs> I've heard of that with engineers sometimes. <laughs> <laughs> this is a common stereotype that we have in the world. Um, well, so that sounds like it was probably a very interesting work experience, and then. Did you stop doing that because the company was sold or something happened or you got a new opportunity or how did you transition into the next thing? Yeah, I stopped doing that because I, I grew kind of frustrated because that company wound up succeeding uh, fairly well. It went from me being the first employee to we had about 15 employees by the time I left. Mm -hmm. And it was suffering all the, the growing pains that you might expect from a relatively close-knit uh, group of people who were friends in the beginning uh, to people that are talking about a $20 million sale and how that would be divvied up. And I realized pretty clearly that I was just going to get screwed on that deal um, or from my perspective, screwed on that deal. And I just didn't want to be there to see it. And I figured it was time for a career change. So in kind of a um, moment of, of not rage, but just, just defiance, I suppose I got my resume together um, or really actually made my resume for the first time <laughs> and first real time. I'd always kind of had one, but never really. And, uh, and I put it on dice.com, like monster.com for technical. And, uh, wound up getting a call from a contracting company that, uh, worked very closely with in situ, which is the drone company that I wound up working for. Okay. So you did a contract thing and then worked for the drone company and it kind of led into it. That's right. Yeah, I worked for this company. They were called STG, and it was they were a contracting company, and I worked for them for in situ. Like every single hour of my time, I was at in situ. So I felt like an in situ employee, but I was working for this contracting company. And after about eleven months or a year of that, uh, in situ wound up trying to negotiate for a couple of us to work for in situ proper, and those negotiations broke down, so they wound up just buying STG. Okay. So that's how I came to work at Institute. <laughs> we want these three people. No, we'll take you all. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's kind of what happened. <laughs> all right. <laughs> Interesting. So what were you doing with this drone company? So I started off as, as just an individual software engineer um, and worked on really cool uh, technologies there, um, mostly on communications from my networking background, uh, how the aircraft talks to the ground and, and vice versa. and and what the various computer systems inside the aircraft, how they talk, very, very similar to what I was doing with the 787, just on a smaller scale. And, uh, and then wound up getting promoted from there to leading that little group that I was working on. Um, and then over the course of five years, um, my role changed pretty much every year to where at the end, I was uh, chief engineer for the, the integrator, which is the larger of the two aircraft that, that in situ um, makes. Yeah, so let's talk about what these drones, like what size of a drone, what do they do? Like, I, we're like, yeah, drones, but I'm picturing Tiago's like photo drone, or I'm picturing like space, or I'm picturing like magic. I don't know <laughs> what kind of drone. Yeah, completely. So, so this is, uh, they cost $1.3 million each. 
Uh, they we we would sell them in in fours, uh, pair, you know, four aircraft at a time with the ground system, and the ground system is the air the launcher. So the the vehicles don't have wheels on them. Uh, instead, there's this like potato cannon kind of thing that launches the aircraft into the air, and then a skyhook we'd call it, which is this large crane that had a rope dangling down, and the aircraft would fly into the rope and catch itself with uh, hooks on the wings. So it's kind of like a ship coming into a sling. But in yeah. the air. Yeah, that's right. Yeah. Okay. Um, the aircraft was 145 pounds with a 16-foot wingspan and a 99cc uh, engine. Okay. 145 pounds. It's like a person. Yes. Small-ish person. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, medium. I don't know what size people are. <laughs> <laughs> Whatever. It's a person. And 16 feet. So it's like, so they're very, I guess, like light. Or is it like a dense center with wing? Like, does it look like a plane? It looks exactly like a plane. It's fixed wing aircraft. Um, and it's it's called the RQ-21A. We wound up selling it to the Navy. Um, and it got, you know, like there's the F-16 and the SR-71 and all these cool sounding airplanes. Mine was the RQ-21. Okay. Uh, the Blackjack is what they named it. Ooh. That's right. I have a patch and everything. What? Like, you know, the little patches. Like, like there's a patch for every launch uh for nasa like every mission had its own patch and every government program has its own its own patch uh, so i have a patch that says rq21a blackjack on it it's got a little picture of the airplane what uh-huh where is that patch is it on like a cool jacket unfortunately it's sitting in a drawer That's in my storage unit in oregon zero percent surprising to <laughs> 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 contain my disappointment <laughs> <laughs> Moving on. Um, so when you say we sold these in groups of four, was it like you're just selling them off to the military or different branches of the military? Or are there other people that buy them or companies that buy them? Yeah. So anybody could buy these. Um, the specific variant that we sold to the government was had classified bits on it, so you couldn't buy that. Um, but the general platform you could buy. And um, and it was a program of record. And what that means is it's, it's something that most defense companies seek out. It's the holy grail. And basically what that is, is when you're the program of record, you are the first source for any need that's even close to what you fulfill. So if you're a program of record for pencils in the government, then you're just in the, the, the government catalog. If you want a pencil... Oh, the program for record is unrelated to like the thing they're doing. It's just that you're the company or whatever that provides it. Correct. Got it. Yep. I thought we were talking about like computer programs. No, no, no. Okay. Sorry. Yeah, it's it's a it's like there's programs of like record. You're for, our drone provider for ships, for pencils, for toilet seats. Like there's programs of record for everything that the government buys. And it, if you are a program of record, that means that you are in their catalog. Okay. And if you want a pencil, it's different than the pencil that is officially sanctioned. You have to put in a justification for that. Right. Right. And are so, there many drone manufacturers and companies? Mm, like, did you, did you guys have competition, or you? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, we had uh, we probably had six direct competitors for this this program that that we had to compete with very strongly, actually, uh, in full on like trials. Like, we build the aircraft and and go and fly it out in the middle of the Arizona desert and and try and track people and and, and things and and see stuff on the ground and like not crash. You know, these were, these were, <laughs> <laughs> it was very stressful. I mean, this was a full on competition. And, and this is, is all just so much. <laughs> these, when you're working there, like they already have them being produced and successful or you're coming in and it's like new, like we're building this and we're competing and like, we're still testing out if it works. Yeah. You're, you're given a stipend to build a prototype. 
So in an ideal world, what the government does, they say, we have this need and we would like it filled and here's the exact things that it needs to do. And if you show more than just a passing interest and you're a company we deem capable of even trying, we'll give you $10 million to build a prototype to show us what you got. And then those 10 companies or whatever that, that applied come to the desert and try it out. And that's first selection. And then there's three or four of these rounds. And then you get awarded the contract. And when you get awarded the contract, even then, you're only on the hook for, uh, they call it LRIP, low-rate initial production. Um, so you're trying, you're doing a whole bunch of design. Basically, it's like throw away everything you have and start again with these much more stringent government requirements, like must be able to survive chemical warfare and you know all these types of things, fly through radar that would literally boil your skin, like you know all these types of things. And then you get to the real start of the program. You've already been awarded the contract, but then you go through a new design phase and then you start building these things for low rate initial production. So you came on like in the early stages of this or when they were already winning? No, very first, uh, very first prototypes. Um, wow. Was, was when I, was when I joined the company. So they, they had something that was flying, but it was still being controlled by a guy on the ground who was a very proficient RC pilot, but still being controlled by him like a large RC plane and oh, okay. uh, a remote control, okay. you know, like RC hobbyist okay. um, kind of plane and took it from there all the way through uh, low rate initial production, um, which is actually kind of a big deal. If you're, if you're, sounds kind of like a big deal. Yeah. If you're a government contracting <laughs> thing, it's, it's um, you making it to milestone C is what it's called, which is basically go like the government has done the design with you, like you've won all the competitions, you've eliminated your competition and you've thrown everything away and started from scratch with the government's requirements and, and oversight. And you've built new prototypes that have met all the trials, the much more stringent trials with the actual military people that will be using it. So in our case, it was Marines that would be using it. And they were satisfied with it. That is the close of milestone C. And from there, now you start building these things and actually deploying them out into you know, wherever the military needs them. And, uh, and so taking it through milestone C is actually one of the larger uh, milestones in my career, actually. Um, it's, you know, if I ever have to fill out my resume again, um, I will definitely put that I was the the lead software engineer for a successful um, completion of milestone C of a program record. Wow. <laughs> no, that's just, it's a whole new world. And also explains why the defense budget is so much money. Yeah. Like we'll give you 10 people, $10 million to crash some stuff in the desert. Let's see what happens. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Yeah, um, yeah. But it's necessary because otherwise, like, how would you test? How would you know? Like, I, I mean, I don't know if it's all necessary, but um, certainly you have to test things out. And these are expensive things because because of the materials. And like we were talking about uh, earlier today, the, the people and the time of the people is expensive and um, it takes a lot of work and expertise and trial and error. Yeah. And the government does the same thing with their facilities. Like when we go to test, they have a billing rate for their own facilities. Like if you're going to use this part of Yuma, Arizona was the proving ground that we were doing our testing on. If you're going to use this block of space for this testing, it costs us a million dollars a day to staff that block and, and, and hold it. So, so you, this drone company was a hundred percent, like the whole company was this, competition and project and, and, and workflow or were they like doing other drones for other purposes and other government programs or 
private companies. Yeah, this this uh, drone was the second that the that the company had made. The first one's called the Scan Eagle, and it still is not a program of record. It was um, originated in time for the Iraq and Afghanistan wars, and it was flown there as a service. So the the military didn't own it. They would they would buy flight hours uh, from Institute. Institute fly people over there and and aircraft and everything and just charge the government for when the aircraft was actually flying. And that was a drone. And that was also a drone. Much smaller. Um, and the definition of a drone, I guess, is just that it's unmanned? Or, well, what makes something a drone? Yeah, I have a hard time with the term drone. I use it now, as you can as you can tell, but it was a derogatory term. Like, when I was working at Insitu, especially in the beginning days, drone was, when I thought of drone, I thought of, like, the Predator and Reaper drones that are, are shooting people in Pakistan. Um, and... A lot of what people call drones, like the small quadcopters, uh, like like Tiago has, I would call those drones now. Um, but if you're flying something manually with a stick, and if you let go of the stick, it will eventually crash. That is, in my mind, absolutely not a drone. I think of things now. My new expanded now. I've kind of accepted the drone term. I think when people talk about drones, both what I would call the professionals, you know, like like the company I used to work for and, and the larger things and the sophisticated hobbyist ones like, like Tiago's, uh, I would call those drones because they have a device in them called an autopilot, which is the thing flying the aircraft. Like if it gets pushed by the wind, it will autocorrect. It will, it knows how to stay in one spot because it's got a GPS sensor in it and it, it follows that GPS. When you're giving it guidance, you're not, you're not telling it bank, 10 degrees to the right and, you know, bank harder. You're not flying it like you drive a car. Instead, you're giving it commands like, like move forward a little bit. And it goes, okay, I need to bank forward and I'm going to move forward a little bit. Mm-hmm. You're giving it higher order commands like to fly. fly you're, you're navigating it. You're like the, the passenger reading a map saying like, we need to turn off here and do this other stuff. Correct. And then the car is driving itself. But in this case, it's the flying device. Yep. You are not the pilot because the autopilot, the computer in it is the pilot. Okay. And so a drone, so you're saying like originally and like technically a drone is something that is not only an autopilot, but self-navigating or, or it's the autopilot and someone is navigating. I think I would, I would classify it as the autopilot. Okay. Um, The autopilot is what makes it a drone from a remote control aircraft. A remote control aircraft is something that you have to pilot always like you like are every pilot. detail of yeah the- you've got you've got two you know joysticks on your controller and you are flying it has no way of you can't just say go fly straight it doesn't this concept doesn't exist right um but like for for my aircraft for for the rq21 how the blackjack <laughs> the blackjack <laughs> how you would fly it it was a very boring video game looking thing if you can imagine google maps a view you know top down view uh and there's this stylized flat aircraft icon that I drew in uh, Adobe Illustrator and it's sliding across the map and you can click and drag it or you can draw a polygon like you can click, 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 click and make a route for it to follow and it will just go and do that. Mm. And, and so you're, you're, you're flying it, you're navigating, I think is a great way of saying it like you, you just said. And you can say, go do this circle for 10 hours and we'll go do that circle for 10 hours. Okay. And so what you were doing there is writing the software or like leading people writing the software for the navigation of it or for, I already forgot what you said you were doing. Yeah. I kind of skipped over that part. Okay. Um, so when I first started, it was all about communications. So there was a bunch of computer systems involved, both on the aircraft and on the ground. 
Um, and, you know, you can think of computers that point the antenna that have to always, that are the antenna that's on the ground, that always has to be pointed at the aircraft so you get range. Um, and you can think in the aircraft, there's a computer for actually controlling the flight surfaces to make sure it doesn't fall out. And there's another computer that controls that first one that gives it higher order directions, like go straight and bank. And then there's another computer that controls the cameras that are on board the aircraft and another one that does mission sensing, uh, like, um, and storage, like a black box type type facility. There's computers everywhere. There's the computer that the user is sitting at. And all these things need to talk to each other. And some of them are very high bandwidth, like an Ethernet link between them. And some of them are very low bandwidth, like a very, very slow thing, slower than dial-up speeds between the aircraft and the ground because we're going for range more than we are um, throughput. And so all these things need designs on how the data flows. And that's what I started off doing. I started off working in that, in that team. It's called Communications and Infrastructure. Uh, it was a little six-person team that did that, and then wound up leading that, and uh, and then wound up um, leading all of the software teams. And there was a bunch. Uh, there was communications and infrastructure. There was two user user interface teams, uh, a simulation team that that wrote all the software to be able to fly the plane as though you were actually flying the plane, but it's all on your laptop, as well as be able to take all of the hardware and put it in a lab and the hardware thinks it's flying and the software that's running on it has no idea it's not flying, but really all of the sensors of the aircraft are being faked out by another computer, a computer simulation computer. It's Sorry. like Ender's game, but not. Yeah, yeah, I had a team that did that. <laughs> and then I had a, a flight controls team um, and then a, uh, a missions team, a payloads team, and they did all the cameras and such. And then a quality assurance team. So anyways, I was, I was um, the technical, uh, lead for this um, and uh, and that's what I was when we all the way through the bulk majority of uh, the RQ21A uh, project all the way from um, initial uh, demonstrations through Milestone C and and then after that after successful Milestone C uh, there was some restructuring and I wound up getting uh, promoted to chief engineer which means that I grew out of software it's the first and only time in my career where I didn't have software uh, in my in my title, and um, in this case, I had all of those teams. There was forty six engineers in the software team, and then a bunch of other teams like uh, the, the electrical engineering team, uh, the aero engineers, uh, the quality engineers, systems engineers, structures, um, you know, a whole bunch of other people. Uh, I think I think by the time I left in situ, there was about one hundred and forty five engineers um, working on that project. Wow. I'm just, I'm absorbing a lot. Um, <laughs> sure. I'm talking a lot. So. <laughs> no, no, but it's just, it's a, uh, but it, I mean, I, I think I'm following it. When you were talking about the, the stuff earlier with all the different computers and stuff like that, I think it can be really overwhelming to people who don't work in that. Like I don't work with that. Um, but just thinking about, it's kind of weird to think about it as like humans, but you know, there's like a person who would have to do this thing and a person has to do this. And like each person's just, or like elves or something, you know, it's like little elves that would be managing all of these little things. And what you're really doing is like, you're telling the elves, like how to be in touch with each other. And like, what is like, this elf does this, this is how you do this. Don't forget to do this. Don't forget to do this. Don't forget. To, and like, that's basically what you're doing. You're like, how does that elf tell this other elf the thing that they need to know? And I don't know why thinking about it as elves makes it easier than for me thinking about it as computers with programs, but I think, I don't know, something about like an elf talking is easier for me to grasp than like a ones and zeros is somehow that. 
Sure. I mean, I think that's a great way of framing it. That's absolutely like I used to very viscerally, like you're describing, have that mental image in my head. After 15 years now, that's sort of faded. But at the at the core of it, I've got that same mental um, image in my head. I very much think of these entities as being more than just bits on a screen, for sure. Yeah. Yeah. And so um, throughout that, how many years was that? Five years? Five and a half, I think, yeah. The whole time were you working in software or like as you were moving up into these management or like lead positions, was that like more human management and project management focus or were you still like actively writing code or whatever it is that you did? I was supposed to be writing less and less code for sure. Um, but it turns out that I really like engineering and it doesn't actually have to be software. I, I just like engineering. I like solving problems. I like knowing all the fine details and coming up with a clever solution. That's, that's what, what motivates me. I really enjoy that. I think, I think most engineers will re that will resonate with them. That's the feedback loop for an engineer. Yeah. I, I uh, talked to Martin the other day and he was saying, um, that one of the nice things about his company is that they have like these promotional tracks so that you can move forward in your career technically uh, in a different way. Cause a lot of people who are on that engineering side or, or tech people, whatever that means, um, promotion is usually management and that's usually human management. And that's like overseeing the project or managing a budget or talking to a client or like assigning things to the team. And if you're interested in the technical stuff and you're interested in working on it, like that isn't where you're trying to go. Like maybe you want a harder project or maybe you want a different project or whatever that is, but it's like a, it's like a completely different career change. That's like me getting promoted as a teacher and then them being like, and now you're coding something. I'm like, why is that the next step? Like, <laughs> yeah, I couldn't agree more. And I've been very lucky in that besides my, short stint at the Space Missile System Center, where I did have budget uh, and people you know, working for me in a very literal sense, like I signed their timesheet. Besides that, uh, my entire career at In-Situ, I didn't have people like in the org chart, you wouldn't see people with lines drawn to me. It was, I was the technical authority. Um, and I always had a counterpart who was the project manager. And so we were a pair, basically the project manager uh, handled uh, schedule and budget, technically, and I handled all of the you know, requirements and, and technical fulfillment. Now, obviously, you work together. We crossed a lot, but I never had to deal with uh, hiring and firing directly, specifically firing. And, and actually, he didn't either because in these types of organizations, you just don't allow someone to use your charge code, basically kicking them off the project, and then they can go work on something else in the company. Hmm. Interesting. And then did you, the next thing you did is this company that you helped start. Was that something that you left in situ knowing I want to go start this company or like somebody reached out to you or you wanted to leave and then figured it out or? Yeah. So I got, I got a call. There's this man, uh, Steve Sliwa. He's the CEO of Seek, which is the company I'm at now. And he was the CEO of in situ as well. Before that, he was the CEO of Colt Firearms. Um, oh, I've heard of that one. <laughs> yeah, and, be, and before and he was he's done a lot of things. He was yeah. he was also the president of Embry Riddle University, uh, which is okay. I think it's the largest aeronautical engineering university in the world. Um, but anyways, he did that, 
and uh, and he worked at NASA for a little while as well. So a few things. He's done a minor, few things. Little. He's things. a very impressive individual, and yeah. uh, and he was. And he's a technical person, or he's more business CEO. He has he he started off being technical, um, very much so. Like he he still dabbles in software, um, but he's he's an older gentleman, and and I think he's since decided that while he likes dabbling in software, he is more skilled at business activities, and he does a phenomenal job at drawing that line uh, for himself. Um, and, uh, and so he went and got his MBA and, and his PhD, uh, in business and, um, and then the doctor of business, doctor of business. Sure. <laughs> Why not? You know, yeah. uh, <laughs> and, uh, but anyways, he took in situ uh, all the way up to in 2008, just after I joined the company, um, got sold to Boeing, uh, for $400 million, which was fairly successful. Back to the planes. And also, yes, $400 million. I like how I just was like, planes, but <laughs> that's a big contract. Yeah, so uh, as part of that, he, he had to stay uh, at Institute for uh, two years, I think. And then, and then after the two years elapsed, he left. And two years after that uh, was when he could start contacting people at Institute um, to, for, mm. for other things. So I got a call from Steve um, the day before, actually, he uh, he was allowed to contact me, and about ten minutes in the conversation, he realized it was the day before, and he's such a stickler for rules, he hung up. And the next day, I got a phone call. <laughs> <laughs> I respect that. I appreciate. It. I feel like a lot of people don't appreciate and respect the rules. It was nice to know. Thank you, Steve. Yeah, being a good businessman, being a good respecting guy. the rules. Yes, that's what I like to hear. Yeah. So uh, he he made a pitch, and and I. Uh, I enjoyed the pitch, um, but I had just uh, not too long before that been been promoted to be chief engineer, and I was um, pretty pretty excited about that um, and intimidated about it. I mean, to give you some context, I was 27 years old at that time, um, and I was chief engineer for a fairly large chunk of this fairly large company. And my peer is is actually my best friend. His name's uh, Dr. David Rathbun. He was the chief engineer of the other aircraft, the smaller one. Um, he is, um, you know, a PhD in aer aeronautical engineering, a master's in controls, and he's 52 years old. He's my colleague, you know, like he's, <laughs> it was very intimidating. You know, I just didn't feel like I, I deserved it or, or that I really belonged, but I wanted to own it. And so I think the big decision for me at that time was, do I leave in situ and deprive myself of a chance of owning this. Yeah. Um, Cause I'd been working in that role for about a year beforehand, but I just got the title um, not too long beforehand. And, uh, and so I wanted, so that was the big conflict at that time was, do I, do I go off and start this company? So the pitch was to start a company. Like he had an idea. Mm -hmm. I want to start this company yeah. and I want you to help me do That's that right. as, right. because at this point he's the more business side and he was looking at you to be like the technical side of it. Yep. Okay. Yep. So, so me uh, and the uh, the, di the director of engineering at Insitu, and then two of the really good engineers at Insitu who are husband and wife couple who met at MIT. Ooh. Yeah, they're really awesome. Um, Sounds like a movie already. Um, <laughs> but yeah, so we 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 are the, the people who who uh, who started who started Seek. So you you stayed at Insitu for a while and and kind of held them off for. Not too long. I don't have very Six good. Six months? No, Three less. Months? Yeah, right around there, I think. But you'd already been in the position somewhat. Yes. And, and, and three months is short, but I also feel like if you're working, it can be enough to kind of establish some amount of 
okay, I do know how to do this and, and sure. I understand this role and, and I can move on yeah. without a regret about having tested it. Yeah. And also at this time, I, I decided that work-life balance was more important than you know, early 20s Dustin thought it was. And I just really wanted to um, not, not work at a desk for 60 hours a week. Yeah. You wanted to work at a startup. I wanted to work at a startup for, for 60 hours a week. <laughs> well, that was another appealing thing was that we were all fairly, this was not our first startup. You know, we... we was in situ considered a startup? Yes. Or the one before that? Or both? Yeah. Uh, everything. Everything except for the uh, Space Missile System Center that I worked at, I would consider a startup. Okay. Um, but Seek certainly is the, the, the closest that I've come to, to like, starting a company like i didn't originate the idea for it um but i am one of the 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 founders i think how many people were the founders five five and that was in 20 2013 2013 okay and so what so what was what was the original idea like how did you guys get started like what's it like to start a company yeah uh it's really weird it turns out because for me it was it was culture shock like I'd come from in situ where you know I had a security clearance, I had a badge, I had to fill out a timesheet. There was security people. If you did things the wrong, you know, I didn't have uh, administrator access on my own computer. I couldn't install whatever program I wanted. You know, there's all kinds of things like they they you know could technically read your email and you know all this stuff. To apparently they can read all our emails, but yeah, <laughs> the government can. Yeah. <laughs> to you know that was Friday, and then on Monday. I'm in my house, like talking over the internet to people being like, okay, what do we do? Yeah. It was just, it was huge culture shock, you know, and for an engineer, it's really unusual. Maybe it's more usual in the startup culture, but I think for, especially for corporate engineers, you know, people have been doing it for a while. It's unusual to have a brand new product. They call it Greenfield, something that doesn't exist yet. Um, as opposed to Brownfield, which always makes me giggle a little bit. But that's something that has been there for a long time, and you're maintaining it, you're trying to modify it and bend it into, into shape. You're, you're, you've got a lot of legacy decisions and past behaviors. But this is brand new. You're creating something from scratch. And this was a first for me, actually. I'd never, I'd never come in and built something from scratch before. And all your 27 years. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, right. Yeah, yeah. You're totally right. In my short career, certainly. But it feels like a long time. Yeah. No, I mean, you've had a, quite a few jobs and quite a lot of experience, but. But this time, you know, it's, it's I don't know, it's, it's you know, like one of the first conversations was, okay, what language do we write this in? It's just weird. You know, these kind of conversations are rare. Yeah. Well, and it's, I mean, yeah, deciding every little detail of the language and the format and like on any kind of like. I don't know if there is a user facing side, but like, what is that experience like? And like, who is it for? And how do they want to use it? And how do they need to use it? And how big are we going to go? And like, yeah, I mean, literally every question just leads to probably 50 more questions. And yeah. Yeah. And I think, I think it was very um, illuminating for me just how confused you can be. Because in my, in my career, you know, engineers, they like to live in little boxes that they can solve. You know, and they make the box a little bigger and then they go and they solve that. You make it a little bigger and then they go and they solve that. Or you give them too big of a box, they freak out, you know? And, uh, and I had too big of a box. You know? And and so it you was... You draw little boxes around yourself. I should. I should. You know, I wouldn't let myself leave the living room. <laughs> but we didn't know what words to use to describe the things that, that we wanted. And the industry that we chose to tackle, which was, you know, manufacturing, 
was not my industry. Just, just like I, it's the flip side of what I was talking about earlier, where you don't, you, you get to, as a software engineer, visit other disciplines and other, other fields like, you know, rockets and, and networks and, and aero stuff, airplanes. This was a visit to a, an industry that I knew nothing about. And yet we had nothing and we had only ideas. And so there was a lot of feeling around in the dark. And I think it took a very long time. I would say maybe a year and a half before we, when having a design discussion, wouldn't spend most of the design discussion misunderstanding each other or straight up arguing about what to call things. Yeah. So these five of you that started this, um, I guess two, two questions, but what was the original pitch of what like he said, let's do this very ambiguous idea, but something, cause you've all said, yeah, let's solve that problem. Mm-hmm. And two, uh, did he have money for this? Had you all just saved enough from your jobs that you were going to be like self-funded for a year and a half until you got somebody to invest? Like, I don't know where this story starts, but. Sure. Yeah. So, um, I think Steve had already put together a, a deck of describing the company at a very high level of like, here's what we're going to solve. I mean, think, Think of Before you guys came on. This was what he used to get To on. get you on. Okay. Mm-hmm. And it was what he used to get investors on as well. Mm-hmm. And as a CEO, especially in a startup, your primary job is to get money. So that was not my job at all, though I was interested on it. And I came to some of those uh, investor pitches. And for Steve, it was very easy because he just come from a successful startup, a very successful startup. So he right. was a bit of a golden boy. And our first... It, I didn't put any money in. I did have a pretty low salary that I traded for equity, um, but I've been paid the whole time. And um, in our first round, our Series A round was $6 million. And when was that in the course of you working there? Um, I mean, I got paid immediately. Like on, on day one, I was, I guess I got paid two weeks after day one. So he had done that pitch for a Series A while you were still at the other job? I think he was, there was a pre, a pre, this starts to get complicated in Silicon Valley kind of things. Uh, I can go as deep as you want, of course, but, (laughs) but this can get pretty deep. And a lot of times what they'll do is they'll offer, um, uh, incentives to invest early. So if you're one of the first investors to put down money, it's, it's, it's post dated to the date of the actual expected series A closing, but you're putting down money a few months in advance or up to like six months in advance, generally you'll get between a 10 and 20% discount on shares okay. if you do that. And so the series A hadn't happened when you came on, but somebody had given money knowing that they would invest in the series A. Correct. And series A just means the first round of outside investors in a company that yes. is new. Yeah. And you'll find that series A, that term doesn't come from uh, a bunch of startup people making up terms. That term comes from uh, the, Siri, the Securities and Exchange Commission, the SEC. So when you launch a funding round like that and you publish shares, it's called Series A, and that's something you file SEC paperwork, and you can go and search that database. So okay. you can actually do that with Remote Year. Like you can find Remote Year Series A and Series B paperwork online. Okay, because what has happened now is it's not just that someone's putting money in a company; it's that you're listed 
on the stock exchange? It's private still, but it's similar. It's very, very, very okay. similar. Like you have stock and there are options. These are terms that are used on the stock exchange, uh -huh. except for that the stock exchange is anybody can buy in and there's no, there's no rules on who can buy in. This is, think of it like a private stock exchange. Right. Like people have stock and they have options. They're still controlled by the government. You still can't do shady things. Like they're all the same rules as public stock mm -hmm. exchanges. You're just not listed on a public stock exchange. Right. And the difference from another private company company is that another private company is just a private company and they get their money from their products or their customers or whatever, not investors. And it's just that if you're a private company that's been invested in, then you'd series A or there, I assume this is a whole different conversation, but are there other ways that people can invest in companies without it being really sure. series A? Yeah. So yeah. you could, you could decide that you don't want to make your company a corporation. Mm -hmm. Um, and you want to make it like an LLC, a limited liability company, mm -hmm. in which case you can't make stock in a limited liability company because that's just not one of the tools that that business structure allows you to do. Mm -hmm. But you can have partners. I think you can have up to seven for an LLC. Um, I could be wrong on this because there's also an S corp, but this is stuff that I, I'm not, I'm not yeah, an expert this on. This isn't your thing. But you would have partners. Um, and and so you can't have people that are, you could, they could be silent silent partners, in which case they're basically an investor, but you'd call them a partner. I see. But and if people invest in a company, it is in this realm of the Series A, and that's what the investment means. And yeah. If you're giving them stock or options and you use these terms and mm -hmm. they are the legal devices that, that these terms represent, then you fall under SEC regulations. Okay. So you guys were able to get that relatively early on. You guys are getting paid and you're able to devote the five of you to this pitch idea. Yeah. So, so we actually, the engineering uh, side of it, start working immediately and Steve is off doing fundraising rounds. Mm -hmm. And uh, at this time, actually, there is just a huge hiring effort. Like we're trying to hire as much as we can actually. So, and you, what, what did you think, like, what was the definition of what it was that you knew that you were doing or making? Pretty much exactly what we have today. Um, I think the elevator pitch is the same. Um, it just to give a slightly larger description of it is it does have a user interface. Um, it's a HTML5 user interface. So it's in your web browser and it, it looks kind of like PowerPoint. Um, there's thumbnails of, of work you've created on the left. And on the right, there's uh, line charts, like in Excel, if you make a line chart of something like, you know, rainfall over the year, and it's kind of this line that's going up and down as, as the months um, go past, that's a pretty good visual of what our application looks like. And instead of rainfall, you have uh, temperature of boilers or uh, value of glass that you produced if you're a glass company or um, number of Tylenol you produced if you're, if you're a pharmaceutical company. And... What you're looking for with this software, like what our customers are trying to do with it and what we want them to do with it is be able to use, they've got all this sensor data. And the reason why they have this sensor data isn't because they said, you know what, we should instrument our process so that we can figure out what's going wrong and optimize. This wasn't why they installed sensors. Instead, they installed sensors so that they can install computers and motors to uh, control the physical process. Like you've got water in a pipe and you want that pipe to have a flow rate of 10 gallons a second. How do you get it to be 10 gallons a second? Well, it turns out how you do that is you have a pressure sensor on one side of a valve in the middle and a pressure sensor on the other side. And then there's a computer sitting there and it's, it's looking at the pressure differential and opening and closing that valve. 
So it's pretty much like if you had uh, you know, a garden hose and if you turn it on all the way, it just spraying everywhere. <laughs> but if you turn it off, of course, it's not going to rinse off your car <laughs> like you want. You want it right in the middle. Yeah. But somebody upstream, it's not nice, even water like we have. It's the water pressure is going up and down like a bad hotel, right? So one minute it's like spraying and the next minute it's just dribbling out of the hose. Well, if you had a buddy sitting there at the valve and they're able to like turn it up and turn it down and kind of like follow those pressure dips, then you'd have on your end of the hose, regardless of what's happening upstream, you'd have a nice, even pressure. Well, you need this a lot in manufacturing. Mm -hmm. And so uh, since you don't want to pay people to do this, you have computers do it. And and they no need a lot of sensors. Computers. No elves. Yes. <laughs> and you have a lot of sensors for this. And uh, and some really smart guy in the 80s said, well, you've got all these sensors. Why not store it? Put it in a database. And they said, well, okay, I guess so. If the plant burns down, we can figure out why. And we're coming along 30 years later and saying, well, you've got all this data now. How about you use it to help you make smart business decisions? Mm -hmm. Like, where is your process going wrong? You've got these really smart people who've worked there for 10 years and yeah, they've got a good like gut sense of what's happening and maybe they're right, but wouldn't it be nice to know? You've got enough information, you've got enough data. To, Tons of data. You've got a bunch of data, but the problem is you've got too much data. Mm -hmm. You can't get any information out of the data because it's just, you're overwhelmed by the data. You've right. got, I mean, your typical manufacturing plant has 100,000 sensors. That's too much data. You know, it, because how often are they getting data? Uh, each one of those sensors, I, I would think that the average update rate is between one and, and every one to five seconds, a new sample is being posted. For like an eight hour day, 10 hour day? No, continuously. Constant. Yeah. Because it's a factory. It's a factory. They don't have a 40 hour work week. Yeah. Like, like an oil and gas refinery. They're, they're continuous process. They never shut down. They're and every one to five seconds, we have a hundred thousand things getting a piece of data. Yeah. Some of them are, lot. some of them sample, you know, once a second or much less than once a second, like hundred times a second. Um, and some of them sample once a month, but on average, I would yeah. say yeah. Know, between, between one, between every one and five seconds. So right. it's a lot of data. There's 86,400 seconds in a day. There's a lot. So you just know because you're dealing with this. Because I'm dealing with this. Yeah, exactly. Right. But I mean, it's a lot. You can imagine that that's for one sensor for one day, but you've got 30 years of data. It's just a huge amount of data. Um, and, and this is the kind of stuff that computers now can do. I mean, Google is indexing the internet. It's yeah. ridiculous that they can do it, but it's a very different kind of data. Mm -hmm. You can imagine like indexing Wikipedia where every page has 30 links on average, 10 links on average, a lot of links to every other page. So it's very wide data. It's very interconnected, highly interconnected. If you drew all the interconnections between it, you'd wind up with this thick ball of mm -hmm. stuff. But that isn't the data in a manufacturing plant. Instead, the data in the manufacturing plant is this temperature sensor. And it says, okay, at noon, the temperature was 76 degrees Fahrenheit. And at noon 01, it was 74 degrees Fahrenheit. But there's no context for that. There's no, that sensor has no idea whether or not you're even making Teletubbies right now, or if the plant <laughs> shut down, it's just a sensor that's reading. So you don't even know by looking at this, you see a squiggle on the screen, but you don't know, like, when am I making Teletubbies? Like, when <laughs> should I be paying attention? Even simple questions like that are, there are no tools for that in our industry today. So this is the kind of tools that we're, we're building is to help contextualize this data so that you can start to work with it in meaningful ways. So you started this, what did you say, 2012, 2013? 13. 2013. It's been three years. Yes. So yeah, three and a half now. what's happened in three and a half years? We built a product. Okay. <laughs> that's great. I assume that that's what the investors wanted. Yes, I think <laughs> they so were too. Like, Here's $60 million. I'm so glad to see you spent it well. Six. Six. Six, six yes. million. 
six million so far. It's actually uh, more than that now, but but it was six million in the first round. Yes, mm -hmm. and um, yeah. So so that and uh, and starting from scratch, it, it takes a while, and and yeah. it's been a learning experience for me on, on how long these things take to get moving. Certainly. Uh, so now I think. I, yeah, I don't know exactly how many people we have, but I'm going to guess around like 25 to 30. I not definitely not 30. I would say if I had to put an exact number, 27. 27. Um, and uh, all engineers, or this is like marketing and HR and whatever. Yep, we've got a, uh, four or five salespeople. We've got uh, a part-time uh, like logistics and office and marketing person. Uh, actually, she's full-time, but we have a part-time um, accountant. And, uh, of course, we've got a CEO and a VP of marketing and a VP of emerging markets. And, mm. you know, we've got a bunch of people. But, yeah. But we have a good chunk of engineers. Uh, mm. I think we have 15 to 17 engineers. Uh, I should be able to count them, but not That's right all right. <laughs> and, uh, yeah, we're definitely engineer-heavy, which is great. It's exactly what you want. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so what's the product? Yeah, so the product is like I was uh, saying, it's this 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 web page uh, that you can go to that connects to a backend server, and the server accesses the data from this uh, this database, and uh, and you can graph the data in various ways, um, and you can start to index it and and do interesting um, juxtapositions of data uh, with it. So you can start asking questions like you can imagine if you had a temperature sensor outside. It's called an outside air temperature uh, sensor. Tricky. Very tricky. <laughs> uh, engineers. I love engineers. <laughs> <laughs> um, if you just saw it, like let's say that you looked at it over a month, what you'd see is you'd see a bunch of ups and downs, squiggles, and, mm -hmm. and those would correspond to days. But unless you knew what time zone the sensor was in, you could only take a guess at what the days were based on, well, okay, it's going to be coldest at night and it's going to be hottest you know, at three, 2 to 3 p.m. Uh, in, in the day. So you could guess kind of what time zone the sensor was in maybe, but you don't even know like that's an outside air temperature sensor unless somebody tells you. Mm -hmm. And so the first thing you need to do to, to make any sense of that whatsoever is carve it up into meaningful chunks. For an outside air temperature sensor, it's almost certainly the days because that's what drives the temperature. But if you've got a temperature sensor inside that's measuring the temperature of a kettle, well, the days don't drive that. Something else drives that. What drives it? Oh, it's the batches. When am I making Teletubbies or not? And so you need to know when the batches are. Otherwise, if you say, well, uh, what's the hottest the kettle has ever been? It says, you can ask that to tools that exist today before us. What's, what's the hottest the kettle has ever been? And they'll say, well, it was March 3rd at 4 p.m. You're like, great. What was happening at March 3rd at 4 p.m.? I don't know. <laughs> Because what you really want to know is you want to know when, what batches, what's the top 10 batches where this kettle was the hottest? Mm. Did we make successful Teletubbies or not? What was our yield? Like how many Teletubbies were successfully made as opposed to how many we tried to make? Is there a correlation there? Because mm -hmm. then you as an engineer can formulate that hypothesis. You can say, oh, we want it to be in this temperature range and that's the best one yep. or whatever. Yep. Or like this was the summer and FYI or like, yeah. Exactly. Because your problem is... I'm not making as many Teletubbies as efficiently as I want to. That's or, the box that engineer is happy to be in and figure out. But yep. He wants his information. You need to know, you need some tool to be able, otherwise you have to manually say like, what do you do? You get out a calendar, like here's when we made Teletubbies <laughs> and you start like looking at the screen. I mean, like, how does this work? You know, for huge amounts of data, it's just, it's just impossible. It's not human scale um, yeah. at this point. Right. And so you want to be able to ask relatively simple questions like this, but over very large amounts of data. Um, what, what are the top 10? And 
maybe I don't want to know what the top 10 point is. Maybe I want to low pass filter it so I smooth it out a little bit so that spikes, you know, random spikes because the sensor is a little bit noisy get taken out. Mm-hmm. Um, maybe I know that the plant was offline and this boiler was being tested during this time. So I want you to take that out. Mm-hmm. And I, generally I've got this information in other databases throughout the plant, but none of these databases talk to each other. Um, so we kind of sit in the middle of these databases and try and connect this data together with the engineer's help and allow them to have a tool that allows them to play. It's kind of like Excel or Tableau allows you to play with tabular data. So if you've got data that fits into a spreadsheet, Excel will allow you to play with it. You can graph it and you can move it and you can do that. But if you've got time series data, data with a timestamp on it, and you just want to like, let's say you want to take the average of two temperature series. You can't do that in Excel because each one of those temperature series is going to have, you know, there's a sensor saying, once a second, I'm going to take the temperature. But those seconds aren't going to line up for the two sensors. Mm. So you can't just like take the two temperatures and add them together and divide by two to get the average because those temperatures are half a second off. And if you want to be really accurate, you can't just add them like that. They're, they're half a second off. You have to account for that. Mm-hmm. But in our tool, you can. You can just mm-hmm. add two series, divide by two. Like we wrote a language that allows you to do that. Mm. Um, was a lot of the development of this product um, like did you find certain like manufacturers or plants that you kind of like partnered with to do research and test it out or how do you because obviously this isn't something you specialize in like you don't even know like what are they curious about like what is the pain point like how do you figure that out in a room full of engineers right yeah yeah so so our initial goal was to absolutely do that we wanted to have these launch customers that we would offer significant discounts to because we didn't really have a product um, to help us build <laughs> Seems the Seems reasonable. Yeah, it's a typical thing. You don't to- have to pay us that much because we don't know what we're doing. <laughs> but pay us some and it'll be great. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, it's a typical, if you if you can convince a company of this, it, it can be a win-win because the company sure. will be They get able- a custom product. Exactly. It <laughs> really works for them. Yeah. So if you think about it from their standpoint, you've got an R&D budget, a research and development budget as an organization. You sure. can give a relatively small portion of that to a startup company and give them some of your expertise and you get an undue amount of resources back Yeah. because um, they have their own funding. Sure. Um, and so this was the value proposition. And we were relatively unsuccessful with this. Oh, okay. Um, so we had to rely on our backup plan, which is the CTO is a guy named Brian Parsnett and he has... 35 years of experience in this industry. Um, and, good choice, uh, probably. Yeah, he's pretty good. <laughs> he's a really brilliant man. Uh, and then John Peterson is our uh, VP of marketing, and he was the VP of engineering for this database company I was telling you about that is now, I think, like a $4 billion company in this space. Um, so he's a big asset. Good teams yes. help. Yes, they help a lot. Yeah. So now you have a product and you have clients and you're also continuing to get investments for, I don't know, like product development or new products or. No, no, no. To, no. to even fund this existing product. Like we so do you're, have you're sticking with the product and just trying to improve it and yes. move forward with this product. Yes. Okay. But you also have paying clients who are using it yes. today. Yes. Okay. Not enough to sustain the company, but sure. Growing. Yeah. But that still means like there's something that it's a, it's re- it is ready for actual clients who can use it and apply it to yes. their problems. Yeah, absolutely. That's very cool. That seems like a lot. I mean, I'm sure at the time it was a challenge and probably still is, but three and a half years, it's, I don't know how three and a half years you have a toddler, like, you know, like little 
monster running around. Like, certainly <laughs> not like a fully produced human. <laughs> yeah, and in this industry, it's not you know it's not making an app. It's 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 a long range industry. Yeah. You know, things move slowly, and they're big contracts. Mm-hmm. I mean, if we landed one medium sized contract, that makes us revenue neutral. Um, like the customers that we're going after, you know, they're they're companies like. Um, Exxon Mobil and Tesla and Honeywell, like they're really big companies. GE um, and uh, and if you you land a substantial contract with these, that makes the company. Mm-hmm. Does anybody else do what you do? We have one competitor now. <gasps> yeah, it's actually really exciting. I'm pretty excited about it. We found out about them about a year ago, um, and they do compete directly with us in at least one area of the product. Um, but to my mind, that just proves the market. Before yeah. that, we just didn't even have a like. We were the market. Now, yeah. now it's an easier conversation with ourselves and the investors, being like, "Well, there's a whole separate group of people we've never talked to that also believe this is a market." Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And I'm sure, like, at the moment, you guys would not have the bandwidth to take care of everybody who has this problem, and like, competition helps move everything forward, and like, everybody needs their needs met. So, like, it's not necessarily a crisis. Yeah, um, either, which I think sometimes like we are like oh, competition. Like, yeah, you know. Sometimes there's room for like a lot, you know. <laughs> like, um, yeah. okay, yeah, cool. Well, that's real. I mean, that's this. You so many things: <laughs> drones and planes and rockets and sensors. <laughs> oh my! It's like big, 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 tiny, <laughs> big data sets, tiny little things, big data sets. <laughs> Yeah, yeah. Um, well, that's very cool. So that's what you're you're doing. You're still working on it, and um, now your role is is what? I'm the principal software architect. So you're very much on the developing the software for this program. Yes. Yeah. That's yeah, pretty thing. much my. I'm yeah. I'm the the, the technical lead for the, the software uh, team. And is that more on like the R and D side or the the what the clients are using side? Uh, so we're so we're a startup, so we don't have an R and D side or what the client's using. It's just one product, mm-hmm. and it's all kind of R and D right now. There, there are definitely people that are using it um, for actual product um, interrogation on their side, you know, to understand their problems and and, and such. But at this stage, we're such an immature uh, product that we don't have the resources to split out you know, like a mainline development and a and an R and D. Development. It's all R and D. Yeah. So you get to wear different hats. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> cool. Well, thank you for letting me ask every question and learn a lot about you and drones and all this other stuff. It's really it's, I think that's what's so fascinating once you start talking to people is you realize how much you don't know and how much people have done, even that you know well, and also just what is in the world and like you know, there are these things I just, I don't think about at all, but like they actually require huge teams of people and years of experience and all like it, it's everything. It's just so complicated. And, um, but that's great because it means like you can find things that you're interested in that you didn't even know existed. Yeah, absolutely. Really cool. Well, thank you. Thank you. I am super excited to be talking with you again 
over four years since we were in Vietnam together at the end of remote year. And I'm really excited to hear, you know, what you did after remote year and what you're up to now. And maybe to kick that off, uh, since we were speaking at the end of remote year, let's just go ahead and say, you know, what, what happened after we ended that month in January 2017 in Ho Chi Minh City? Like, what was next for you? Yeah, good good question. And thanks for thanks for having me back. Um, so at the end of remote year, I didn't want to go back to the States uh, where I came from before remote year. So I spent an additional three or four months traveling around with my then girlfriend, uh, now wife, Tunde. And uh, then we went back to the States for a few months and then uh, kept traveling. So for about four years after remote year, uh, I, uh, I was bouncing around uh, to various places, lived in Ireland uh, for a year and a half, um, and now I'm back in the States. Oh, I, I don't think I realized that you were in Ireland for that long. Is that because of her or y'all just picked it as a place or? Because of her, she got a uh, she got a job, a non-remote job. So she was uh, tied <laughs> to one spot, Cork, Ireland. And uh, for immigration reasons, I couldn't be there 100% of the time, but it was definitely my center of gravity for about a year and a half. Wow. Cork is really cool. I visited it a couple times briefly um, when I was in Ireland and it was really neat. I went to the Butter Museum, went to some cool <laughs> string concerts in a converted church. Uh, it's a pretty town. Yeah, I liked it. It, it rained a lot uh, and the, the winter <laughs> was very, very dark. <laughs> Didn't realize how North Ireland was until until living there for a bit. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, it's so interesting to experience places at different times of year, like the upside of being a digital nomad or even just going on vacation. You tend to go places when you want to be there. So it tends to be mm -hmm. nicer weather for some reason. And if you yeah. suddenly find yourself in the dead of winter in a location, you're like, aha, this is totally, less yeah. than ideal. <laughs> Like for Ireland, people talk about it being very green. It's like, yeah, it's very green because it rains all the time. <laughs> <laughs> wow. So you were working remotely this whole time with your same company. Correct. Yep. Yep. We uh, we founded it eight years ago um, and I've been working there 100% of the time since then, which is the longest I've ever worked at a single place. Yeah. So how is your role within the company been in the past, I guess, four years? <laughs> yeah, it's a great question. So when you when you start a company, there was just six or seven of us in the beginning, and everybody's doing everything. And, you know, roles don't really matter so much. Um, it's more just what you're capable of doing. Um, but, but as as the company has grown, we're now I think about 180 people or 170 people, uh, depending on if you count uh, part-time and contractors and such. Uh, so we're, we're quite a bit bigger, still not giant uh, by any st stretch, but we're definitely bigger. And so roles have definitely gotten a lot more rigid, uh, I think. And, um, and it's been interesting to see uh, how, how they have changed and, and, uh, and how they have grown. So my role then uh, when we started the company was individual contributor, um, uh, software architect, but architect of software that didn't exist yet. Um, and now my role is, is a, a decent leadership role. Um, I'm an executive, I'm the, the chief uh, architect uh, in the company. Um, and now our development team is about 
65 full-time equivalents uh, big. And my day-to-day is managing the architectural vision uh, for, for that product. So we have six or seven scrum teams um, and I'm the lead product owner for those scrum teams. And then the actual product owner for one of them, uh, the Calc Engine Squad. And so my day-to-day is a lot of Talking with people, convincing folks of, of various uh, strategies, perhaps, and then some coding. Uh, I still very much love getting my hands dirty. I don't think you'll be able to pry my keyboard from my hands, but admittedly, admittedly, in the beginning, it was 100% of the time coding, uh, and now it's 10% of the time, <laughs> and uh, 90% of the time, you know, in, in, in meetings or, or discussions or, or reading and reviewing design docs and things like that. Yeah, I think that's such an challenging thing in careers in general, like not always bad per se, if you like managing people and doing strategy and meetings, like some of us enjoy that work and are skilled at that. And that's an important thing. And the flip side can be frustrating that to get to that point, you have to start out by doing things, even if you're not the best doer and you're good at the managing and the strategy and the talking, it's kind of, that can be a rough growth. Um, But for people who love to do the coding or the design or the writing or whatever the work is, as you progress up, you inevitably become more of a people manager and a strategy person and you lose the work part of it. And uh, I know I've talked with Martin about that, about the challenges of uh, promotion out of the work. Um, and so I'm, I'm curious, you know, are you doing that just because you said like you can't force me, <laughs> you feel like I'll never quit coding? Um, and how does that work at your company for people? Yeah, that's a that's a great point, and I think something that you know when I'm when I'm talking to folks, you know, people that I mentor, um, generally folks earlier in their career, I'll share that with them, just like I'll, I'm about to share with you that my previous uh, career at the uh, the drone company, I wound up following a rather similar uh, career progression where I started as an individual contributor. By the time I left, um, I you know had more of a leadership position. Um, and by the time I left, I was very dissatisfied with my day-to-day um, because I had left all the individual contributor stuff behind. And it turns out I'm an engineer because I like engineering. I like the hands-on piece. Um, and so when starting Seek, it was definitely something that I promised myself I wasn't going to let myself grow out of in search of you know these somewhat arbitrary and oftentimes fictitious career growth ambitions. Um, you know, I, I really wanted to, and I still want to have uh, some grounding in the things that I find motivating at an intrinsic level. Um, and, and so I think that that's really important. And a lot of times it's contrary to what, you know, society or the man will tell you is, is good for like career growth. You know, I think really identifying, at least for me, really identifying what, what makes you get out of bed in the morning. It's probably not walking into another meeting. Um, you know, it could be, um, and there are definitely people that get really jazzed about it. Um, cause you know, it's not just all meetings are created equal. You know, there's some that are, are very engaging and, and good brainstorming meetings or, or strategy planning. Um, but for me, having a healthy mix of hands-on, um, actual, tangible delivery to customers of capability is incredibly motivating. Um, so you'll you'll uh, you won't catch me making the same mistake again of just leaving it all behind. Um, that ten percent is important to me. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, I mean, it is. And it's, I'm sure, you know, valuable, too, because 
it keeps you very clear on what the company is really doing, what the product is and how it's working and how it's not working and what you can ask of other people. Because I think it can be easy to forget, you know, what a scope of work really looks like and what we're asking people. And of course, there are times you have to sprint or get something hurried or do extra work or whatever. But I think it's so critical, those of us who are, are in roles of assigning things to other people and um, asking people to do things, like I should know if I'm asking you to do 100 hours of work this week and like if that's even feasible to get done in 100 hours of work, you know, like it like and I shouldn't do that every week. Right. Like these are really key things. And I'm not saying every manager needs to do that, do the work to be able to do that well. Like you can you can just be considerate of people and understand what their job is like but it can help. You know? Yeah. The, the best, the best folks that I've ever worked with and for, uh, they, they're able to speak my language. Um, and, uh, and I think that that's definitely something that I've relied upon a lot in my career was being able to, uh, not guess at what somebody might be thinking and the challenges that they have, but have walked in their shoes. Yeah. So you said your company is about 180 people and you have 60 something on the development side. Mm -hmm. So what is, what is the company like now? Like what are, what are you guys doing and who is there doing what kind of broadly? Sure. Yeah. So, so our company is called seek um, and we make a analytics, a self-service analytics product for uh, industry. So oil and gas, uh, clean energy, uh, manufacturing, pharmaceuticals, uh, you know, water uh, companies and utilities, uh, basically any any company that has or any facility that has sensor data. Um, think think like a strip chart, you know, a squiggly line on a screen, um, but thousands or hundreds of thousands of them. We make products for managing uh, and getting value out of that, that data. And to that end, uh, since we're selling to folks that are industry, you know, the chemical engineers, process engineers, um, operators of, of equipment, uh, we need folks on staff that can show how to use our product to solve real world problems. Um, and uh, and so we've got a division in the company uh, called analytics engineering, and uh, we employ, employ a bunch of folks with those backgrounds, oftentimes out of the industries that we are targeting. Um, so if we're if we're going into, you know, a pharmaceutical uh, market, we will go and and try and identify folks in that market um, that are technically inclined or have have a vision towards you know our product's direction, and uh, we'll get them on staff and uh, and they can be an advocate for the customer internally and also you know uh, talk to the to the actual customers externally. That's a big chunk of the company. Uh, roughly, I would say I'll break it down as developments roughly a third. Uh, analytics engineering there is roughly a third. And then the last third is things like marketing, sales, uh, people ops. Uh, and uh, I, I think I would put in there customer success in general is, is how we've rebranded it. Um, so all of the uh, facilities needed to a company and make sure that our customers are, are interacting well with us. Yeah, it's... Um... Something I would never otherwise have had an insight to, except that my sister works in pre-sales at Workday, which makes HR software and other things. Mm -hmm. um, and so her whole job, she's not the salesperson, but her whole job is to set up for every client that they're pitching and working with a presentation where she goes through highly in detail exactly how that company would use their software and tools. And it's such a level of detail. Like she spends 
40 hours preparing for a presentation because it's highly technical and highly specialized. And she's not an HR person, she has a business background, but it has it really has opened my eyes to how much companies that do things like this, you know, you can't just go in and sell people like we make this product. Like you really have to know very explicitly how that customer would use the product and walk them through it. And that's just on the, their their pre-sales side. And then once you have a customer, then there's a whole other arm of actually the implementation of using the product and then ongoing support. And I think for people outside of these industries, we would never understand <laughs> the level of specialization and work. And the entire careers are built around not even... I mean, you guys are making the product, but like the entire careers are also just built around helping people work with a product. Totally. Absolutely. I mean, imagine, imagine you didn't know what Excel was and somebody comes in and tries to pitch you Excel. You're going to be like, I don't have a need for that. Well, I don't, I don't know what all these little boxes are. It doesn't, doesn't matter. But it's like, go oh, look what you could do. You could do, you could do your finances this way. You could do, you could make these kind of charts. You can, you need someone to like, you can't ask your customers to have this wild imagination for what they could do with your own product. You need to lead them there. I think that is, I think that's sales, like good sales in a nutshell. Like you cannot ask people to imagine what they can do with your product or service. I mean, it's great to have an imagination. And of course, you, you do want to ask them to imagine some things because you can't know everything. But at the end of the day, like it is your job as a sales or marketing person, not in a slimy way. You're just like you have to illustrate and explain like this is what I'm going to do for you. Here's that journey of like where you're at now and what you're able to do and how this is going to change that and theoretically make it better because why else would you be buying it? And yeah, it's, it's a very, it's educational experience. And I think we have, I recently had to buy myself a used car and I, I, I had a pretty good experience, but I have, I had one slimy used sales guy experience, which is good, you know, cause I could tick all the boxes. Um, <laughs> like, yeah, I did that. And, and the problem was he just, he wouldn't listen to me. He wouldn't listen to the words I was saying. And he just kept pressuring. Mm -hmm. I'd say, mm -hmm. I'm not going to make a decision. I'm going to go home. <laughs> and he'd say, you have to make it. What, what can I say to get you to buy it on? Like before you leave the lot. And I'm like, literally nothing. And he wouldn't leave me alone. And it was awful. Um, but when I, when I worked with people who were answering my questions about the car and telling me what they knew and telling me what other options they had and letting me take it to my mechanic to get it checked and verify that it was a good decision and letting my parents test drive it, you know, they're, they're there to provide information that I don't have about this product. I was very happy to have that help and support. And I bought a car, you know, like it worked. I wanted a car. I needed a car. Like we got there. Um, and so I don't think all sales is bad. We have a very bad misconception, um, I think against salespeople and it's because of the slimy ones, but a lot of good people do really good jobs helping people get products and services that they need. Absolutely. And, and I think you, you, you're hitting the nail on the head for sure, because we're all sales people like we we're constantly selling we're selling our ideas uh to our colleagues we're selling our worth to our managers and to ourselves so like we're constantly you know half half of what we do on this planet i think is is sale mm -hmm. is selling and that's good um you know that's just yeah. a, it's, kind of a, it's another way of saying that we're connecting dots right we're 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 uh you know sales is a necessary and i think maligned um yeah uh, activity <laughs> yeah for sure. And, and I think important for people to recognize whatever stage you're at with a business idea, whether it's just you or a company or a big company, like a 
strong percentage of your time and energy will eventually be those conversations internally and externally. You know, making the thing is critically important and that takes time and energy and expertise, but you will be selling some idea or something so much of the rest of the time. And so it's good to just get comfortable with it. And I think to approach it as a positive conversation, an educational process, you know, you need to be able to know that you're the expert, that you know what you're talking about, that it's a good thing that you're trying to convince people of and understanding and being empathetic to their wants and needs and then packaging all of the information necessary together to do those things. And like, totally. Yep. <laughs> so how is the company, you know, what's kind of happening now or like what you guys are trying to do at the moment for the future? Sure. Yeah. Yeah. So, so the company, it's, it's, it's relatively interesting The the modern way of selling software or the in vogue way of selling software now is subscriptions. Um, and as a consumer, I'm not a big fan of having a bunch of subscriptions. Um, but for businesses, subscriptions are a great way of reducing risk. You don't have to spend millions of dollars right up front for something necessarily. Uh, you can you can buy it on a monthly basis or an annual basis and really make that intentional decision every year to keep recommitting um, or, or leveraging that value. And Seek is a subscription-based uh, company. So we sell, technically it's monthly uh, licenses, but they're sold in, in year chunks. Um, and that is a, a very it kind of puts you in a swim lane, um, depending on how you sell your software, uh, investors, venture capital investors will kind of slot you into various different ways of thinking about that investment and metrics to track for success and growth. And Seek is a subscription-based uh, company, which means that the bottom line number that everybody looks at is your revenue, your annual recurring revenue, your subscription revenue growth. Um, and we've been pretty fortunate over the last uh, four or five years uh, to have a pretty good growth pattern. How you can get like the darling of venture capital uh, subscription companies will do what's called triple, triple, double, double, double. Uh, and so you basically the deal is you fight like the Dickens to get to a million dollars in subscription revenue every year. So a million in ARR and recurring revenue. And once you hit that, Every year for the first two years, you want to triple it. So 3 million and then 9 million. And then you want to double it for three years in a row. And the deal, the, the idea is, is you know, it's just a rough kind of rule of thumb. But if you can do that, then you're on track to be a billion dollar company. Um, a billion dollars in market capitalization in, in worth, um, you know, on, the, on a, a stock market or, or a private equity um, market. And a billion dollar company is an is a unicorn. Um, and so that's kind of, if you're in our, our venture capital uh, game, then you are trying, everyone's trying to be a unicorn. And so we've been trying to do this. So unicorn is an official term. <laughs> unicorn is an official term. You can type it in. You can say VC space unicorn in Google and you will pop up a list of companies. And it means a billion dollar company. Because I've heard it all the time, but I didn't realize because I don't pay attention to these things. I didn't realize that was like, it is a billion dollar company. Mm -hmm. The, the goalpost might be shifting a bit now, but at least a few years ago, a billion dollars was a, was a unicorn. Uh, I think that's still the case, but you know, adjusting for inflation, they're going to have to change that number at some point. <laughs> okay. Mm -hmm. Okay. So it's, you go one, three, nine, 18, 36, 72 million. 
Yeah, and it's not, it's not quite it. the, the doubling and such that they'll say that, you know, some of those years, it, it should be, it, 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 if you just follow the exact number, you'd come up with the numbers that you were just talking about. But they, the venture capital companies will say like, wait a minute, like, I'm like, this is a double year, not a two and a half year. And they're like, yeah, but yeah, let's just round up. <laughs> um, but yeah, yeah, <laughs> yeah that's basically the idea. You're like, ah. Uh. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and so, uh, so fortunately, we're basically on those rails. Um, so where we successfully tripled uh, twice, um, and then uh, just just recently uh, doubled. Um, and so we're we're on those rails, at least as of right now. And, um, and that means that our last funding round, I think we just announced uh, about a month ago, that our last funding round, we're now a half a billion dollar company. That's but that's not revenue. That's what the valuation is, which is different. Correct. Yeah. Yeah. So what that means is that uh, uh, a venture capital company looked at our, our balance sheet, looked at our company, uh, called a bunch of our customers. They did their due diligence, uh, as they call it. And this is a, a couple months long process. And they made us an offer to buy uh, a percentage of our company Um such that they valued the entire company at half a billion dollars. And we say that because it sounds better than 500 million. <laughs> uh, yeah, I guess I kind of use them interchangeably. Yeah. <laughs> just, I'm just for my, for my non-number folks, I like to just make sure that they're keeping up. <laughs> there you go, yeah. Um, <laughs> yeah, uh-huh. Okay, um, so... Not to say anything that would get you in hot water with anybody, but I, I know from some experience with startups, it can really change the company to to grow a lot and to get investment. Like it's great to have the resources and the money and to be able to hire more people and grow, but it also changes those standards and goals for revenue and everything else. And you know how is how, you can't separate it from the the company's experience, obviously. But I'm to the extent that you can observe what that impact is, what are your thoughts on that? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, uh, you're totally right. So when when you get a new investor, uh, you, almost always uh, they get a board seat or two um, for it. So you literally get a new boss, right? You know, the, the board of a company is the CEO's boss, and the CEO is the boss of everybody else. Um, <laughs> right. and so so you're you're literally taking on a new partner, um, and and thus a new uh, you know, first class seat at that table. Um, and so I think it's important when you're a company and you're looking for investment that you select a company that you think is going to be a good partner. Um, and sometimes if you're in a position where you are, uh, where the market's good and your company's doing well, you can be choosy on who that, who that person, uh, and who that company is. And if you're more on the desperate side, you're, you're more stuck with what, what you're able to get. So I think you're absolutely right. It's, it's part of the package, certainly to make sure that the, the folks that are, are joining your team, uh, are folks that you want to, uh, to, to join you your team and, and have a similar vision um, and are going to be able to bring something to the table themselves. Maybe their portfolio companies are aligned with you and, uh, and you can start, you know, there's some synergy uh, to use a nineties a trite phrase um, that, that can develop there. Uh, so certainly that's a big portion of the, uh, the, the, the two way street that is taking a new capital. Um, and it does move the goalposts. Uh, so taking in a, a company when they, when they invest, they're looking for a you know return on investment. 
and figuring out what their objectives are is, is important. Um, you know, a, a lot of companies will come in and invest, especially mid-stage companies like we took in for this last round. They're looking for three to five X return on investment. Um, so if you do the simple, you know, back of the napkin numbers, if a company's coming in with a $500 million valuation, they're looking to take a company to, you know, the 2 billion number. Um, and that's a big company. Um, and you know, folks like me have got to figure out if we want to be along for that ride and how, you know, how long we want, we want to, uh, uh, to ride it. And that ROI for them, is that typically an expectation of one year, five years, like what just generally for investors, how quickly do they yeah. expect to make that return? As quickly as possible. <laughs> <laughs> um, but so yeah, yeah, I mean, obviously there's some, there's some reality that, that sets in there, but yeah, I mean, it generally is as quickly as possible. I think in, you know, for, for our stage uh, investment, you know, somewhere in the three to seven year time frame is a realistic expectation. And is that point, when it IPOs, is that how you say it's happened? Because that's the only way that they yeah. get the money, right? <laughs> yeah, they have to sell to somebody else, right? Okay. Um, and you can do that to the public, which would be an IPO, an initial public offering. Um, so it just goes in the stock market and anybody could buy it. Um, and and then they sell to the market, you know, anybody who wants to buy it. Um, but other ones are, uh, you could you could sell to another uh, another investment firm. There's always a bigger fish, so it could be another right. investment firm uh, that that buys you, um, or it could be, in our case, uh, acquisition um, targets uh, might be uh, things like Microsoft or Amazon, um, or maybe some of the larger manufacturing uh, firms or or pharma firm. Um, those would be strategic acquisitions. Um, and it's pretty important if you're think if you're building a company and you're thinking that that might be a good exit strategy for you to get those types of companies to invest in you along the way. Um, and they almost every large company has a pot of money that they don't want to just stick into a savings account somewhere. Like where do they stick their cash? and they'll stick their cash in an investment arm. And those investment arms are out there looking to make strategic investments in companies that they might want to acquire later. And so it's important if you're building a company and you think that might be an exit strategy for you to try and build um, some momentum in that direction through getting investments, oftentimes relatively small, but still investments with, from those, those firms because they've got some visibility into your growth, um, which makes acquisition later you know, more friction free. Right, right. I was thinking friction. Friction is a big word in my life right now. Not because <laughs> I just have realized that it's this, it's actually, it just dictates everything, right? Like the more friction there is, the less likely I'll do things. And that friction can be, it's crazy observing myself. Little things like if I put my shoes by the door, I'm more likely to go for a walk. Mm -hmm. It's nice for them to be put away in the closet, but if they are, the one pair of walking running shoes, if they're by the door, I will go for a walk mm -hmm. and I won't if they're in the closet. Uh -huh. And if my painting supplies are out, I will go paint for 30 minutes. And if I had to get them out of a cabinet, I won't. And mm -hmm. I feel I don't want to be a slob, mm -hmm. <laughs> but, mm -hmm. you know, reducing friction uh, is actually really critical to do for so many of our goals and priorities is making it easy to do the thing totally. so that you'll do the thing. Yep. <laughs> um, so this, but this wasn't your first round of investment. You guys have had previous. No, it wasn't. This, this was series C. 
um, for us, okay. um, which, which oftentimes in for us doesn't correlate. You can't just say like ABC and say, oh, it's the third round of investment because we had uh, an A2 round and a B2 round. Um, and uh, that, that the reasons for the, those namings and, and what those rounds mean is super complicated. Um, I, I, encourage, <laughs> I encourage everyone to go and, and, uh, and look it up and, and research more into it uh, if you're curious. But um, this is not our first round. It's, it's closer to our fifth. Uh, round of investment. Oh, such an adult job you have. <laughs> so, so adult, um, <laughs> which we're in our, I mean, I'm in my mid thirties. Like I should stop being surprised, but I'm always so amazed by myself and others. I'm like, look at us with our adult mm-hmm. work that mm-hmm. we do with big money yeah. and responsibilities. Right. And yeah. Paperwork. Yeah. Um, <laughs> it was interesting on, on remote year, um, kind of realizing that, uh, I, I felt like, um, I had a, a job that was, um, a little bit, uh, different than, than most on the, on the, in the group, I felt a little bit, um, isolated is far too strong of a, of a, of a way of looking at it. Um, but my, my, my challenge is I, I wasn't terribly worried about the company going bankrupt in a, in a year um, or you know what, where I was going to be working in a year. Um, I was mostly worried about this sort of like long-term investment that I, I, I'd made that I was not sure was a good idea at the time. <laughs> it might've felt was pretty stupid. And so my, my like challenges uh, while, while traveling were, um, we're very much focused on this like long-term thing while my personal life, I'm doing all these like short-term micro adjustments and, 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 and bets. It was, it was a really interesting dichotomy in, in, in my life at that time. And I very much enjoyed it <laughs> and I, I still enjoy looking back on it for sure. Yeah. It was an adventure. And you, I mean, you, you've mentioned the company's fully remote, so you were able to do that. Um, and then obviously you kept traveling and have been working remotely but you're now not traveling, I get largely, I assume, because of the pandemic. Right. But um, yeah, where are you now? Yeah, that's right. So, so the pandemic happened. Uh, <laughs> Tunde, uh, my my wife. So we got married uh, last at the end of last year, um, and uh, and then moved or moved to the states, and then and then got married, um, and we decided uh, to move back to the States largely because of the pandemic. Um, we got stuck in Argentina, in Patagonia for the first part of the pandemic. Uh, there was no flights and no, no way to travel. Um, so we couldn't even really leave the country. I'm sure, I'm sure we could have, we threw more of a stink, um, but uh, we just sort of hunkered down for a few months, about four months. And uh, in the summer I uh, came back to the States. And uh, at that time, the States was like, red on the COVID map. Um, and, uh, yeah, and it's like one of the most expensive countries in the world when it comes to healthcare. And we thought yeah. that's a great place to settle down during the middle of a global sure. pandemic. And, uh, <laughs> so we did, um, we bought a house, uh, here in the, uh, the Columbia Gorge area in, uh, Southern Washington. Which is where you have lived previously. Correct. Yeah. It's the area that I, when I thought of home, I thought of this area. Um, and in the tradition of kind of adulting, like you're just talking about, I know we sound like adults. I was like, you know what? It's time for me to finally, uh, put a pin in the map somewhere. So we, we bought a house here and we may wind up renting it or, or who knows what the future holds, but this is the place that feels most like home to me. And I figured it's a good place to, uh, to, uh, be a little bit more, uh, serious about. Yeah. 
and good nature around. So when stuck at home in a pandemic and in the U.S., always nice to be exploring nature. It's what brought me to New Mexico. Yep. Everything I like to do is <laughs> yeah. here. Yeah, yeah, that's right. Yeah. So we got to do what we can to stay sane and feel a little adventurous. Um, mm-hmm. And where is Tunde from originally? She's complicated. So <laughs> uh, she's uh, she's Romanian uh, Hungarian. Uh, she was born right. in Romania, but the piece of Romania that uh, that became Romania only when the Austro-Hungarian Empire lost World War One. Um, so her grandparents were born in the Austro-Hungarian Empire and they died in Romania, but they never moved. Um, and so when people ask Tunde where she's from, uh, she answers that she is Hungarian, um, because Hungarian is her, her culture, her heritage and her primary language. Um, but yet she grew up in Romania and, uh, speaks Hungarian and Romanian and and English. Amazing. I, I, it's, I think we in America have a very short sense of history as a rule. And, and the way we study history is to keep Mm -hmm. it very separate and like, Oh, back then, you know, even if we're talking about our parents' childhood, <laughs> right? You know, like, my parents are born very shortly yeah. after World War II, and yet it's just like eons ago. And it's like, no, my grandparents were alive and doing things. Mm-hmm. Like, this is not so far in the past. Mm-hmm. Um, and I don't know, maybe other cultures and countries suffer the same uh, warped perspective. But you hear these stories and realize just how how active and recent things are that affect so much of our lives actually still that's totally agree yeah think thinking i'm thinking about washington or dc becoming a new state i'm kind of like well what are they gonna do with all the old flags you know it's sort of upsetting my little world you know in, in a way that yes yeah, like, so that's a ridiculous. very good reason that they don't deserve statehood <laughs> you, you might be upset about the flag redesign it's clearly ridiculous and you know what does the number 50 have to do with anything but I, to your point but, but on, that's like a very real thing people worry about it's like oh well, we can't you know it's been 50 for so long that it just must be 50 and it's like okay but who's to say that dc and for what i know puerto rico don't just deserve to be states mm-hmm. like there's no rule that they can't be mm-hmm. um, yeah. i mean there are but they don't have to be like these rules are things that people made up yeah. you know and and i think that's it's so easy for us to forget that literally everything we're doing is based on stuff other people said yep. and that's it it's not a law of the physical universe totally. yep. it's, this is not weather mm-hmm. <laughs> um, mm-hmm. but um well that's it's a lot of changes, but hopefully mostly good net overall. Oh yeah, I'm, I'm super um, excited with uh, with everything. It's it's beautiful outside right now. I can see a volcano out my window. I mean, what more can you ask for? <laughs> yeah, that's great. So um, obviously we have no idea what the future holds, but I guess for you, you expect that you'll keep doing what you're doing with work pretty long term. Eventually, maybe get back to traveling a bit. Um, yeah, I, it's a good question. I, if I was to pull out my crystal ball, I would say that I'm really motivated uh, by my chosen profession. Um, I'll probably keep doing this for a while. Um, I, uh, I don't know what what form. I'm thinking, you know, my my objective is still to to start, you know, after the seek. Experiment really has has run its course. Um, I think that I'm likely to still still have my eye on starting a lifestyle engineering company. Um, you know, a, a five to fifteen person 
uh, project-based uh, company, uh, maybe with some of our own little products uh, in there. And then just do that until I die. <laughs> That's the... The still, That's still on my goal. Yeah, list. it's good to, yeah. you know, they say, I saw something yesterday, a video saying that what makes humans unhappy is that we have, a, what was it, an endless amount of desires, but if you focus on one, you can almost certainly achieve it. And, and so, you know, if you're like, this is what I want to do and this is what I like doing, like, even if it's a lot of work, you are likely to be able to get there. <laughs> That's, That's great. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Amazing. Well... It's been wonderful to catch up with you and hear, you know, what you're up to. And I think I think it's always so interesting to hear about people's careers, but also sort of a company's whatever career, for lack of a better word. Right. You know, Mm -hmm. how does that grow and change from this scrappy startup that you and a handful of people start to eight years later, a half a billion dollar company with VC investors and all of these very official terms that we hear on the Wall Street Journal, (laughs) if we ever read the wall street journal. Um, yeah, that's, it's, it's fascinating. And it's, I think, I mean, certainly not easy, but again, like it's something that people do, right? Like people get together, they start companies and eventually sometimes those companies become very big companies. And like, that's just how it happens, Mm -hmm. you know? Yeah. Yeah. You got to start somewhere for sure. And uh, it's been very interesting uh, learning. And also everybody is learning at every step of the way. It's always a, it's always a learning experience. Just like, just like all other forms of adulting. It's constant (laughs) learning. Cool. Well, thank you so much for speaking with me and good luck making all that money for your investors. (laughs) (laughs) Thank you. Yeah, I appreciate it. I'll have to do it again sometime. You can find show notes from my conversation with Dustin on our website, modernworkpodcast.com. Check out more episodes with people I've interviewed around the world in a range of professions, other software engineers and developers, a lawyer turned project manager, graphic designers, and more. Please follow along with us on social media at Modern Work Podcast. Leave us a review on your favorite podcasting platform and share this episode if you found it interesting. We are supported by listeners and friends on Patreon. You can learn more on our website. Thanks so much for listening.